VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Monday, April the 3rd. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and Fonz King has produced the program. Let's get the week off to a flying start. That can only happen if you join us live on the air. So, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211. Or elsewhere, it's toll-free, long-distance 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. One second, I try to clear my throat here. Got a cold coming. Okay. So at one point yesterday, St. John's was the warmest city in the country. And it wasn't the same circumstances around the province. But you can see the snow receding. And it's a bit brighter and warmer looking out there anyway today. So anywho, let's start off the week with a, I think, what was a great story. And not noticed by too many in the rink. So I spent a fair bit of time this past weekend out in paradise at the Double Ice Complex taking in the U13 AAA Atlantics. So the hosts, uh, the Eastern Knights, they actually lost to Nova Scotia yesterday in the final. Great game, 4-3. So here's what happened against New Brunswick. So not to get too deep into it, but when there's a delayed penalty, so the Eastern Knights were getting a penalty, and until they touch the puck, play continues. So generally what happens is the goaltender for, in this case, New Brunswick, would go to the bench, they'd throw in an extra attacker, so now it's 6-on-5. At that time... Kid number 17 playing for New Brunswick had the puck on his stick, was skating back perilously close to his own net, and one of our players tapped his stick. Consequently, the young fella scored on his own net. And he was devastated, and you could tell quite clearly. And, of course, we're talking about under-13 hockey players. So he goes to the bench, and there's absolutely some tears flowing, and the coach is trying to console him. His uh, fellow teammates seem to be fairly kind, you know, even though he just scored on his own net, and it looked like a massive faux pas. So he sat there for a little while, and when he finally came back out for his next shift, which took a while, one of the defenders playing for the Eastern Knights, Adrian Shanahan, very calmly and quietly, didn't make a big show of it, but saw 17 coming, went over, gave him a little tap on the pads, a couple of pats on the shoulder pads, you know, just in that, don't sweat it, kid. You know, we've all been there. People, defenders for ever and a day have done that and scored on their own net, including me. So way to go, Adrian. I mean, it's a great display of sportsmanship and class, and it really caught me because, you know, you look at the competition on the ice and the skills on display and the passion for the game, and things like that didn't go unnoticed by Adrian Shanahan nor me. So bravo to her, her parents, coaches, and whoever's responsible for that approach to sportsmanship. I think it's just brilliant. And then also a bit of old-school action at the tournament. So PEI, now amazingly, not one single young, uh, not one single player on the team named Gallant. None. When we were growing up, there'd be a half-dozen Gallants on the PEI team all the time. So, but none of them. Some classic uh, PEI names, McNeil, McGillivray, and others, but no Gallants. But what they did is something that we used to do when we were growing up playing at the big tournaments. You'd line up on the blue line, and you'd skate across to the team you are playing, and you'd exchange things like pins or buttons or banners or pendants or something. And PEI brought that back, and they did it over the weekend, which I thought was pretty cool. Sticking with hockey for a second, last night in the Avalon East Senior Hockey Finals, there was a medical emergency on the ice. Southern Shore goaltender Mark Yatman had an issue. I'm not 100% sure, but apparently he's alert and stable and conscious and doing okay. So until we know more, I'll leave it at that. But I just wanted to wish Mark a speedy recovery here. I'm sure it really shook everyone on the ice and in the stands when you see something like that happen. And on the ice, Guju at the Worlds. Open up against the Swiss did not have their best game. 
So lost, then beat Italy. They split yesterday, so they're 2-2. Two and two, But this afternoon at 3.30 local time or island time, they play against the 3-0 team from Japan. So they're on the move. All right. I was watching the swimming over the weekend at the Canadian trials to see who's going to represent and swim for their country. And 16-year-old Summer McIntosh is a fina. So she'd already had two world records and two world junior records uh, in her pocket leading into the swimming yesterday. So she set a world record in the 400 meters freestyle, the 400 meter individual medley. And in that one, so you swim four different strokes, the last two being the breaststroke and the free. She was two seconds behind the world record going into the last 100 meters of freestyle swimming, which is, of course, her go-to stroke, and beat the world record by a half a second. So amazing stuff. Set another one yesterday, a Canadian and world junior record in the 200-meter freestyle, to say the very least, had an incredible swim meet. And the trial, she'll be the big star for Canadians in the pool. Okay. Oh, so it was 50 years ago today in 1973 that the world's first ever mobile phone call was made. So it took place in lower Manhattan. A fellow who was working for Motorola, his name was Mark Cooper. He called Bell Labs headquarters in New Jersey. He's walking down 6th Avenue between 53rd and 54th Street. So the phone at that time was bigger than a brick, right? It weighed a couple of pounds. And he used that telephone call to call one of his buddies who worked at uh, AT&T. Now, the government was a big backer of AT&T in that time. And so that guy's name was Joe Engel. So Martin, uh, Martin Cooper called his buddy Joe Engel. Nothing but silence on the other end of the line. So at that time, the phone required 10 hours to charge in full. You were able to use that charge for about 35 minutes, two and a half pounds worth of phone, and it came in with the low, low retail price of $4,000. 50 years ago today, the first mobile phone call was made, and as you've heard Ben Murphy and others mention, that it is now firmly in place, the mandatory 10-digit dialing here, so 709 to whatever landline that you are calling. Very quick note here in town. So for garbage collection from now, from the 1st of April to the 30th of November. Even if you don't have one of those black mobile garbage bins, you have to cover your garbage with a net or a lid or something or other. But that's out there and you've got to cover up your trash, which is, I think, a good thing. All right. So affordable housing. There's been a couple of notable announcements in the recent past. Last week, there was $70 million to build another 850 affordable rental units on top of the other 750 that were already announced. And... That certainly will play an active role in trying to curb people's worries and woes and even the ability to find an affordable unit. So the vacancy rate in this neck of the woods is about 2.9%. But around the province, people are looking what are the implications of short-term rentals with the availability of either buying a home or renting a home. So remember at the beginning of this year in uh, in January, out in Bonavista, they put a moratorium on any new permits for short-term rentals. They changed their tune a little bit this past Friday when they took away the full-on moratorium and put some regulations in place that includes no more than 10% of, exi- of existing homes in the town or on a street can be converted into short-term rentals. Now, the mayor of the community, John Norman, is in that business. He's part of a group that owns at least five of these properties. But the difference between a heavy concentration in a town like Bonavista and say, for instance, in the Northeast Avalon, or whatever part of the province you want to chime in and see or offer your opinion as to what the impact of the short-term rentals are. In this part of the province, there was a significant body of work done to look at the implication of Airbnbs when it comes to the rental market. And it didn't come out as the massive issue that people thought it might be. So there's lots of people out there who are housing advocates and talking about the difference in one locale or another versus the density 
and the number of homes in a period, population base, X, Y, and Z. So maybe we should try to make time for some of the housing advocates that are out talking about it. In, uh, notably, Hope Jameson. She's got her finger on the pulse of the uh, housing issues here. And she goes on to say, rental markets, and she's right, I think, rental markets are really complex. And I think it's really easy and plain to point out to go, this is why I can't find an affordable apartment. But there's a lot more layers to it than that. So, you know, the correlation between increased rents and higher concentrations of Airbnbs, sure, but she points out once again that it's localized. So we can and should be talking about access to affordable units. And even for getting into the buyer's market yourself. There is a new federal program about uh, the ability to save, much like a tax-free savings account, where you can save for your down payment on your first mortgage. So the housing issue, we were, we'll take it on here today. Uh, also, very quickly, you know, I know some people don't want to talk about it because it's very traumatic and emotional, and I, th- I would imagine frustrating for some. This is the last week for the folks, maybe some 75 of them approximately, on Galtus to submit their ballot as to whether or not to relocate. The one sticky issue is about eligibility. And the reason I bring it up is not a strict focus on Galtus, but it won't be the last community that goes through this. So getting it right is going to be something else you want to take it on. Let's go. Oh, my, I'm stuffed up here this morning. All right. So Newfoundland Labrador Hydro will continue with their testing for the Labrador Island link and then some 111 kilometers worth of transmission lines to get from Muskrat to Soldier Spot. We all know about the problems. So they did a couple of calibration tests last week. I didn't hear of any major interruptions. But the big test thing will be this week. We're trying to flow 700 megawatts across the Lil, which they have been unable to do without tripping the system. That continues. But in the world of hydro... You know, there was some mention in the budget. When I walked into the lock-in, I always ask the folks who have been in the room for the entirety of the day, you know, just a couple of quick notes to get, you know, some of the information in my head for the 2 o'clock show that we had. You know, you know what's the province using as a price per barrel of oil, all those types of things? Any transfer to Nalcor, which, of course, is not really a thing anymore, hydro. And, you know, a couple from the veterans in the room are saying, not really sure. There's some mention of $190 million and maybe some impact regarding Muskrat Falls. Well, that's exactly what it is. So the province created what they call a supply cost variance deferral account. Mouthful. And it required some $190 million of injection now in an effort to pay some of the bills associated with protecting the rates. Now, rate mitigation is a bit of a misnomer, but the province actually had to borrow on a short-term, uh, a short-term implications to get this $190 million. We don't know the term. We don't know the interest. So we, we don't know what the short-term borrowing will cost at the end of the day to come up with the transfer of $190 million. But the full plan, which includes all the moving parts, the federal loan guarantees and the monies from Hibernia and the additional loan from the federal government, none of that can be put in place in full until the project is fully commissioned which means there's a lot on the line with these 700 megawatt tests this week. If they're unable to uh, conduct them and have success, we're going to have to wait all the way till next winter till the cold temperatures reappear here in this neck of the woods. But any not hydro-related matter is absolutely up for discussion. And I see a via email today that, you know, Dan Trudeau and the carbon tax. Okay, so the federal carbon tax has increased over this past weekend. It doesn't come to our shores until the 1st of July, but there's going to be lots of talk and focus on carbon tax, price on pollution, and maybe some of the measures in the most recent federal, federal budget about this plan. Now, for the first time ever, 
Minister of the Environment Stephen Gibo, because we have been asking, and members of the media across the country have been asking the minister about statements that the government constantly makes about you're going to get more back in rebates, or the vast majority of Canadians will get more back in the rebate check than they've spent on carbon tax. Now, for the first time ever, Minister Gibo says, well, maybe that's not exactly true. On the average, Canadian households, excluding maybe the richest of us all, of them all, <laughs> they will indeed very likely be paying more on carbon tax than they get in the form of a rebate. And that's, of course, over time as the carbon tax increases all the way to its plateau, which we expect by 2030 it's going to be $170 a ton. So they were telling us forever and a day, hey, don't stress. You're going to get the rebate that is more than what you actually paid. And they used to tell us all the time it was 90% of households would see that feature. Maybe that's not exactly true as the escalator starts to kick in here and we see the long-term implication of a price on pollution or a carbon tax. But, yeah, you know, they go on and on and on about how it's tailored so that wealthier Canadians pay more and there's protections in place for uh, whoever we are in the middle class. There's a pretty loosey-goosey definition of those. Here's what the minister said. So the rich pay more for their carbon consumption and their carbon pollution, and we're supporting that through the transition. Middle-class Canadians, low-income Canadians, and that's exactly what we're doing. Not really sure how that all adds up at the end of the day. He goes on to point to some programs that have been put in place. For instance, programs to purchase electric vehicles, which comes with a pretty hefty price tag to get into one. They're coming back to earth somewhat, and that'll continue to happen, I would imagine. I also talked about home energy retrofits to reduce your home heating costs. Also comes with an upfront dollar. Yes, some of the programs are pretty generous, but it still means you have to come up with the cash to entertain swapping out your furnace for whatever, a heat pump or mini splits or whatever the case may be. So the minister finally admitting what we all thought was the case to begin with. All right. Uh, NDP leader Jugmeet Singh is in the city today. There's some rumblings that he may indeed be calling this program, and we're happy to take his call if and when that comes to pass this morning. If you want to put forward some Questions or thoughts for uh, Mr. Singh, we're happy to translate them or, I guess, use your thoughts and put questions to Mr. Singh. Of course, they're calling the most recent federal budget a victory for the NDP, whether it be the second time and the second go-around of bumping up the GST, what people are calling a grocery rebate. You know that's a calculated phrase being used by the Liberals because the NDP have been pretty focused on grocers and the major grocery chains. So as much as it's a quarterly check, they're calling it the grocery rebate, I think, to keep the NDP interested in their struck partnership in this minority parliament. The NDP are absolutely going to look at dental care as a victory for the party. But there's still plenty of questions looming for Mr. Singh, and he has been speaking out in much harsher terms in the recent past about the governing liberals. And so, yeah, you know, the first question will always be the same, and I think this is how it's been handled in most every scrum that Mr. Singh has been in is at what point is enough enough in your agreement with the Liberals, whether it be on spending or programs or the cost to service our debt or the ethics violations, which continue to pile up. And you can label the severity up and down the line, however you see fit. You know, whether it be scandal or ethics violations, however you'd like to label it and bring it forward in conversation. Let's go. But they continue to perform these completely unnecessary self-inflicted wounds. So... The Privacy Commissioner plays a major role here in the country. So now the new Interim Ethics Commissioner has a connection to a federal minister. What? Martine Richard became the Ethics Commissioner on an interim basis on the 27th of March. 
she's the sister-in-law of Intergovernmental Affairs Minister Dominic LeBlanc. Are we honestly telling the Canadians that there wasn't another option available that did not have an obvious tie to the government? Now, some of the other ties that have been put forward, whether it be David Johnston and his role as a special rapporteur because he's on the executive for, he's a member of, the, pardon me, he's a member of the Trudeau Foundation, which is not a political body. And so I think people maybe exaggerate that tie a little bit. But this one, I mean, honest to God, sister-in-law of a sitting minister is new interim ethics commissioner to provide oversight to an ethically challenged government? Don't take my word for it. I mean, just look at the ethics violations that have taken place and the rulings that were brought forward by ethics commissioners. So anyway, some completely unnecessary stuff. Uh, there is some news conference coming today about the expanded scope of practice for registered nurses, whether it be in prescribing medications and referrals to specialists and others. Until I have all the details, not really sure what to say about it, but we all know that that whole concept of maximizing scope of practice can absolutely, most certainly, be part of the solution. There's not a silver bullet here, but part of the solution to ease the burden on the system. And it's really going to be... We're going to need solution-based conversations here because inside even just the portfolio of health in this province, record-setting spend of $3.9 billion, bonuses for recruitment and retention up and down the line, but it doesn't seem to be working specifically for the registered nurses. We went from vacancies of 600 to 752, and then with bonuses that have been dangled for registered nurses to come back into the system to work at long-term care facilities, you know, from 3,000 to 8,000, you've heard the breakdown. And apparently it's just not working. One of the frustrations that they do point to, now the government brought forward increased overtime for registered nurses in an effort to combat what is the obvious frustration of working alongside someone who's a so-called traveling nurse working in the private sector who's doing the same job but getting paid more. And you know in an already stressed out system and a very difficult and demanding job, that doesn't sit well with registered nurses. But maybe it's time to touch back in with Yvette Coffey, the president at the Registered Nurses Union of Newfoundland and Labrador. Very quickly before we get to the break, maybe in an effort to put a few extra bucks in your pocket and help the Avalon Celtics Minor Hockey Association provide top quality programs to our families and players in an effort to control their fees. That was been the driving force of their decision to buy the DF Barnes Arena, which is looking really good. So they got a 50-50 on the go. Everybody loves a 50-50. So go to avalonceltics.com. Click the link right there at the very top of the page. It's over $15,000 and growing. Another three weeks to go. So it's a great way for the Avalon Celtics members, their board of directors, to help provide quality opportunities for young minor hockey players and try to keep it as affordable as possible. So please do go buy some 50-50 today at the Avalon Celtics website, which is avalonceltics.com. An interesting uh, feature inside there. If you know a young player playing inside the Avalon Celtics ranks, you can make your purchase and then assign that purchase to one of the players. And those, so there's some team prizes and individual prizes for the teams and the individuals that get that amount of money associated with them. So another fun way to make your $50, $50 go further, have a bigger impact, and yes, a big cash prize at the end of it, which I think the draw date is on the 25th of April. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openlinefvocm.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. You know the deal that requires your call. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM Morning Show. 
This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number 10 and say good morning to the NDP member for Burnaby South. He's the leader of the, uh, the New Democratic Party of Canada. That's Jagmeet Singh. Good morning, Mr. Singh. You're on the air. Can you do that for me, Fonz, with a little complications here? Good morning, Mr. Singh. You're on the air. Good morning, sir. Happy to be back uh, in Newfoundland, Labrador. Happy to have you back on the program. Well, I know this is probably the first question at every single scrum for quite a long time now, but given the fact that you have, uh, indeed, for about a year now, had a supply and conference agreement with the federal government, there were some big asks on the line, you know, the grocery rebate, which is a, a funny handle for a GST mechanism, and then the dental care program. But now you've been speaking a little bit more harshly about the Prime Minister and the party, whether it be ethics-related matters or what have you. Do, do the ends justify the means? Is there a point coming, or can you help us understand what point it may, we may arrive at where this agreement goes by the wayside? Because you have to measure whether or not you're getting what you think is best for the party and Canadians, but also what the federal Liberals are doing and whether or not they should be held to account in a non-confidence vote in Parliament. Well, uh, I'm, we're confident we can do both. We, we right now force this government to deliver the biggest expansion of health care in a generation. And, and this, 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 um, this expansion is going to mean uh, an improvement for millions of people. Millions of Canadians are going to be able to access dental care. They're going to be able to get uh, a hand in a tough time. So we're proud of that. And we're still holding government account. We're the ones that force the government to stop the obstruction in committee. We're the ones that force the testimony of the chief of staff, of the prime minister, we're the ones that made that happen. So, in effect, we're the ones that are forcing accountability, and we're the ones that are forcing the government to deliver for Canadians. Where well, the op- other opposition parties can't say that. They really can't point to anything they've done to make people's lives better. So you mentioned the Chief of Staff, Katie Telford. She is going to testify, not in front of the Ethics Committee that people had hoped she would, but she will indeed testify for up to 30, or three hours by sometime in the middle of this month. So that's all about some of the leaked CSIS reports regarding Chinese interference, whether it be with the 11 candidates or Hang Dong and whatever maybe potential uh, unofficial back channels were taking place. When David Johnson, the special rapporteur, has done his work, if the recommendation does not include a full-on public inquiry, will that be the straw that breaks the back? We'll keep on pushing for a public inquiry because we believe that is what Canadians need. Canadians need to know that they can vote and their vote matters. And we can show, for example, why their vote matters. When they vote for New Democrats, they get dental care. Seniors in Newfoundland are going to have their teeth covered, all their dental care needs met for free by the end of this year because of what we fought for. And we want people to know that their vote matters. And we know that with political interference, it already adds to the apathy that exists out there when it comes to voting. People think, what's the point? On top of that, if there's if there's foreign interference, that's going to make it less likely that people want to vote. So we want to make sure people have that confidence in voting. We think a public inquiry is the right way to go. We're going to keep on pushing for that. We get to the programs, uh, GST and or the dental care plan, but if there is no public inquiry, will that be enough for you to walk away from your supply agreement? Well, we want to see a public inquiry, so we're going to keep on pushing for that. That's going to be our goal. And, and what we've done in the past is we've been told no on something. We didn't give up. Like on the dental care, for example, two years ago we put this exact idea forward and the Liberals and the Conservatives voted against it. Two years later, we're actually passing it. It's going to happen. It's going to happen this year. And we already have the budget uh, or the money allocated. So we made it happen, even though the government said no. Similarly, with the public inquiry, even though the, so far the Liberals aren't aren't uh, pushing for it or aren't aren't accepting it, we're going to keep on pushing. We've got a meeting lined up with the special rapporteur where we're going to ask and say that's the only way to restore confidence. We uh, forced a vote in Parliament on this issue and got uh, all the parties to agree with us. 
except for the Liberals, of course. But we're going to keep on ramping up the pressure on a public inquiry because it's going to restore the confidence in our electoral system. There's still some confusion inside the dental care plan, and here's what I'm getting at. So at one point, the government had said it would cost about $1.7 billion annually. Now the number is $4.4 billion. Do we have any basic understanding as to how it's exploded to that tune? Because there's a long way between 1.7 and 4.4. So uh, these are based on the Parliamentary Budget Office, and we gave them our our plan, and they costed out our plan initially. A couple of things have changed. They found that more people were going to need the plan than they expected, so that's increased. And uh, we fought for the plan to be broader than initially uh, analyzed. We wanted to cover as much as possible. So for seniors, it's to cover their dentures and other dental implants uh, as needed. So making sure that it covers as broad as possible for not uh, cosmetic purposes, but things that people need. So we, we had it as broad as possible. And then the other assessment was more people needed it than was expected, given that a lot of folks didn't have the coverage that was initially something that the Parliamentary Budget Office thought they did. So they expanded it and found that it's going to cost more because more people need it. It's also been a moving target for the PBO. So last year they said maybe some f- almost 6 million people will be able to avail of the program. Two years prior they said 6.3 million. Now we're using 9 million. Of course, the threshold, whether it be at 70,000 or 90,000, hasn't changed that dramatically for millions of Canadians. So there's still some, I think, uncertainty right there. In addition to that, This will be administered by Health Canada and some third-party benefits administrator. We don't know exactly what that means. The provinces and the territories have been backed out. Details yet to be learned. Can you help us understand to the best of your ability what this looks like and how this is going to get managed? Because I don't think Canadians really know what they have to do, period, to avail of this fund when it becomes fully operational. Yeah, so the idea would be you'd go into, so someone in St. John's here in Newfoundland Labrador where I am visiting today, uh, they would go into their dentist or their hygienist and their bill would be paid for by this national program. So their bill would be covered for free by this federal program. And, and so the reason why it's not, we're not hiring the dentist or hiring the hygienist and setting up a program, what we're doing is setting up a program to cover the bills. So the existing provincial structures would stay, and someone who cannot afford it, who gets covered, who earns less than 90000 would be able to submit that bill. Their, their hygienist or their dentist would be able to submit that bill directly to this federal program, and it would get paid. Uh, no copay, uh, no money up front, it would get covered. So uh, that's the program, and the way it's going to be delivered, we're working on the details in terms of the third party and some of the structure of it. But for, for Canadians, for, for Newfoundlanders, for people in Newfoundland and Labrador, that's the way it's going to work. You go into your dentist or your hygienist, your bill is going to be paid for by this federal program that we made happen. Yeah, two different thresholds, 70,000 uh, 70, uh, net family income or 90. The no co-pays is only for the 70,000 bracket, isn't it? That's right. That's right. Actually, really good. You've done your homework. I should have been more clear. Yes. Uh, under 70,000, no co-pay, uh, and there's a sliding scale between 70 and 90. Inside the world of inflation, you know, people will say any additional monies out can have a upwards uh, pressure on inflation. Not so sure that's true when we talk about dental bills, but... You know, with the overall inflation stabilizing, not to give anyone too much credit here, but around 5.2%. But food inflation is where we're all feeling the brunt. We can all make yes. adjustments in many parts of our life, but consuming food is not one we can necessarily. Exactly. So exactly. Th- we've had the grocery store executives pa- hauled in front of committee. 
and we look at the numbers. Revenues are absolutely way up. Margins haven't really changed. Profits are up. But do we do a poor job in this country with having a well-rounded understanding of what's happening in the grocery stores? Because the major contributors to overall inflation, housing, energy, and food. So I think we focused in on Galen Weston, and fair enough. But there are other implications that I don't think we fully rooted out. And the problem with that is that if you don't have a well-rounded conversation, we can't find solutions because... You know, even if you tax the grocery stores another percentage or so, it's only going to cut my $100 bill by a dollar or two. So can we round out this inflation conversation a little better so we can actually find solutions? Well, there's absolutely a lot of factors in inflation. There's no question about it. And I think that's fair to point out. But what is what is something that's egregious or just feels wrong to Canadians, to, to Newfoundlanders, that what feels wrong is when people are going into the grocery store looking at items they normally purchase, picking them up, seeing the price, and then putting them back on the shelf because they can't afford them. And that very same corporate CEO is making the most money they've ever made ever. It just feels wrong. There's something wrong about that. And I think that frustration is real. And that's why we called, that's why we were actually, it was a new Democrat motion that hauled the, the CEOs of these big corporate grocery stores in front of committee. And what we learned is this, uh, one level of the solution has to be going after the corporate greed of these CEOs. Like I asked the question directly to Galen Weston, all right, well, how much profit is enough then, right? Like if you're making more money than you've ever made before while people can't afford groceries, is there a limit? Is How much is enough? And he couldn't answer that question. And what that points out is they're never going to regulate themselves. And there has to be strict government protection when it comes to consumers. That's why we've got consumer protection. And we particularly need that when it comes to grocery prices. So what we're calling for is better competition laws. We know that bread price fixing happened in Canada in 2018. The large consumer or corporate grocery stores and bread producers colluded to increase the price of bread. So we know it's not uncommon that this this type of stuff happens. So what we need to do is stronger consumer protection, stronger competition laws, and like Europe has done, uh, put in place a a tax on excess profits. That's going to discourage the gouging that's going on. And then there's other things we need to look at as well. One of the things is competition. The large grocery store chains not only have the big footprint and the large stores and the bulk purchasing power and what have you, but they also in large part control the distribution model. So I don't think we've heard a whole lot about that. So if a smaller or medium-sized grocery chain wants one product or another, that'll depend on the order that's in place from the Loblaws of the world, the Empire Group. So... We haven't really done any of that necessary work, which in fact can have an appreciable impact. For, you know, to increase competition, the mid-sized grocer can put out their flyer that says, you can buy this favorite product of yours here, and consequently probably satisfy your entire grocery list there. Should we not be focusing more on distribution as opposed to straight-up profits? Because that's headline-grabbing. That's sensational. It's real. No one d- uh, disputes that. But it doesn't necessarily get down to root cause. Uh, I think we need to do both. I think there's there's no question that we need to look at uh, that's why I mentioned that one of the things we need to do is absolutely change up the laws around competition. The Competition Bureau has has a mandate but doesn't have enough uh, teeth, doesn't have enough strength to be able to enforce some of the things. And they don't have a broad enough mandate when it comes to things like breaking up monopolies. And we know that over 50% of the grocery stores out there in this whole country are owned by just three CEOs. Three CEOs run more than half the grocery stores that we, that we go to. And, and it's clear that the result of that is it's a bigger, bigger monopoly, less and less competition, worse and worse for consumers. So absolutely, we can do better on the distribution side. Uh, part of the, the grocery code of conduct that we've been pushing for is actually um, some rules around uh, protection for the producers to make sure that they're treated fairly and looking at distribution side. So those are things we absolutely need to do. 
ultimately, we got to fight back and not just accept that this is the way things are and that the role of government should be to protect people. That's what I believe. And that's why we're directly taking on the idea of the greedy CEOs. We're taking directly on the high profits and looking at sustainable solutions in food prices. Should a carbon tax be in full applied to home heating fuels? You know, we actually believe in waiving the GST on home heating. We think that, you know, there's certain things in our society we decided that should not be taxed. We, we thought that uh, certain areas should be exempt from GST. In a country as cold as ours, we all know that Newfoundland Labrador gets cold, that uh, we believe in taking the GST off of home heating. We've, we've long campaigned on that. Back to Jack Layton days, he's campaigned on that. Something we still believe in. You mentioned Mr. Layton. You know, people think that this is something new inside a minority parliament, that you'd have this supply and confidence agreement between your party and the Liberals, when in fact Mr. Layton and the NDP of the day and the Bloc Québécois, they in essence did the exact same thing, maybe not as formal with the Harper-led Conservative government. But on that front, and I don't think many people listening are too worried about political fortunes for either party, more worried about my cost of living issues and other issues, uh, societal issues. But Mm -hmm. how do you do the political calculation? The Prime Minister's numbers fall off a little bit, so as opposed to a standalone party with no formalized relationship, looking about opportunities to grow the number of seats, now you've, quote-unquote, hitched your wagon to the Trudeau Liberals, which may indeed, as their poll numbers fall, may indeed drag you with them. How do you do the political calculation? Because your fortunes, tied directly to the Liberals' performance, is a not only a balancing act, but it's a risk. Well, it's a fair question, and, and my team brought it to me, and I said to them, listen, I got into this job, I got into politics to make a difference in people's lives, and that for me is number one. So whatever calculations aside, the whole point for me to get into this to this line of work was to find a way to make lives better for Canadians, and that was priority number one. And when we had the opportunity to bring in something like dental care to help millions of Canadians, to force this government to do things like doubling the GST rebate, putting more money in people's pockets, I jumped on that opportunity because I believe – the whole point of doing this is to make people's lives better. And then I hope that Canadians see that we were able to fight for them and that we can make the argument that if you want someone that's going to stand up for you, make a difference, we can deliver. Lots of people have told us that our ideas are great, but they don't think we can actually deliver. Now we've shown that not only are our ideas great, we ran on the idea of dental care in 2019 and again in 2021. And now, despite not even being in government, we're delivering. I'm hoping to put that argument to Canadians, to people here in St. John's and say, listen, if you want more of this stuff, elect more new Democrats, we can fight for you, and we can show that we deliver. So I'm going to put that argument to Canadians. But ultimately for me, when I was confronted with this strategic question, I said, the strategy here is simple. we got to make lives better for Canadians. I'm always going to choose the option that puts more help in people's pockets, that puts more money back in people's pockets, that gives people the respect they need. So that sounds like you will be the leader for the next federal election. Absolutely. Okay, last one. So a $491 billion budget, you know, $40 billion deficit, $10 billion more than we thought it would be. But notably, it comes along with $50 billion a year to service our debt. When will your party come forward with a platform that not only includes public spending on different programs, dental care or otherwise, but also pays attention to the fact that some point in history, whether or not we compare ourselves to other countries with net debt to GDP or job recovery numbers, at some point we're going to need to hear from parties about the pathway to address $50 billion a year debt servicing. Will your party start speaking about those issues as opposed to simply these spending-related matters? It's a very good question, and I, I turn to uh, Tommy Douglas. And one of the things that Tommy Douglas did before bringing in Medicare in Saskatchewan, before bringing in universal health care, was actually run a very stable economic plan in the province. And he had 
um, he was able to live within his means and, and, and provincially he was made sure that that was a priority that the province was able to service its debts it was able to to pay the bills down and uh, and expand and so I believe in making sure that we use um, the public money that we have very responsibly so there's things that I disagree with the liberals I disagree that they allowed for um, big tax loopholes to continue we can't afford these tax loopholes which mean we lose billions of dollars in revenue and many reports have come out saying that we're losing significant amounts of revenue because of these tax loopholes that we can't afford to maintain. We said that we should be giving public dollars away to very profitable companies, which we continue to do in, subvent- and in uh, subsidies that go to highly profitable companies. That's money that we can't afford to spend. So we wouldn't uh, be spending on those items. We'd be increasing our revenue. We believe that uh, an excess profit tax is important. Uh, Germany, Spain, United Kingdom all put that in place has increased their revenue. So we would look at revenue side, we look at not wasting money on tax loopholes and using that to invest in an economy that is sustainable, where we're making sure that we can cover our debts and that we're living in a way that helps us uh, build towards more expansion, but making sure that we can live within our means at the same time as well. Yeah, tax on surplus comes along with the same question associated with Bill 11. Who gets to be the arbiter of truth? Who gets to be the arbiter of what's an acceptable uh, rate of profit? I uh, appreciate your time. We're well over our a lot of time here this morning, but thank you, Mr. Singh. Enjoy your travels, and welcome back to the province. Thanks so much. Happy to be back. Take good care. Bye-bye. That's Jagmeet Singh. He's the leader of the federal NDP. You want to talk about what you heard there or switch up the topics? Do exactly that right after this. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. And welcome back to the program. Okay, Fonts, lock me into line number two. Good morning, Gwen. You're on the air. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing okay. Thank you for asking. How about you? Oh, great. Pardon me. Um, I wanted to give you uh, a very quick overview of um, the court situation with uh, female abuse. So it's just uh, I'm going to give you a few pointers here as to what I'm feeling anyway. Um, The code of silence, which hid all forms of abuse from the public, was broken a long time ago, exposing all forms of abuse reported by females. It was to help females to feel safe when reporting their assaults privately to police and to be guided as to where to go for crucial counseling immediately. However, over the years, far too many police officers assaulted females. Some of these police were finally arrested and brought to court after the horrendous damage to the females had been done for life. The archaic laws that are still used today by lawyers and judges favor the accused still. Females are treated yet again with abusive words, demoralizations, shaming them on the stand, with many more. Today, females refuse to report their abuse to police or the judge because they cannot trust them anymore. Once again, females are neglected and over time emotionally and physically haunted with flashbacks. Over the years of policing, there had to be a silence to protect the integrity of the police force. No wrongdoing was to be exposed to the public so as not to lose any respect 
of the public. However, in the day's light, in today's light, far too much abuse has been exposed. Just to give you the uh, example of the Hughes inquiry in 1989, exposed how much corruption uh, occurred at Mount Cashel Orphanage and police attempting to keep it all quiet. This exposure has had a horrific worldwide still today for so many suffering victims never to be unburdened from their trauma. In today's light, <clears throat> far too much abuse to females have been exposed to the courts. This further abuses the victims because the language and methodology of each hearing is abusive in itself to each victim in flashbacks and night terrors. Harassment to each victim in the court escalates by lawyers who call the victims horrendous names, thusly treating them as criminals because the lawyer must win his case. Bias toward the victim from the judge who is biased against women is a difficulty for victims to proceed without harassment from the lawyers and the judge. When the court appearances treat abuse victims with even more abuse to the point where victims refuse to go to court to fight their case, it's revealing. As reported, having been so abused by the court lawyers and judge, a victim ran out of the courtroom shouting angrily that she no longer will be abused by the court, protecting herself from further abuse. She was arrested by the police and brought back to court. This was a victim who was arrested, trying to protect herself from more abuse. I mean, it's astoundingly wrong. So what are you suggesting be done to change? Because the adversarial system is going to remain in place as much as we bring in measures, whether it be in sexual assault trials and the way that some lawyers conduct themselves and judges conduct themselves and members of law enforcement. So what are we suggesting here, Gwen? Well, um, first of all, the archaic laws <clears throat> go way back. It must be eliminated. And stop abusing females. It has also shown the public just how little uh, the police force can no longer be trusted. Pu the public feel that they don't know what to expect from them. All of us must remember something. It was only 1929, and there's a, a lot of people who are 90 years, 90 years and onward were given identification as a person. Before that, they weren't a person. What arrogance is that? And that, You know, we're still falling into this. And in 1986, there was no longer, women weren't property of the male, but yet still they were permitted the rule of law as punishment. You know, what are we? How crude is this? You know, females are stuck. Now that we are a person and no longer property of the male, Females are still fighting for equality, and it has been stated by many in conversation that many females are in backward Stone Age prison. That's their words, where the male rules and we must obey or be maimed or killed in this sick power whenever 
the female does not conform to his command. It's like we're living within a sick bubble. It's time for a very large culture change whereby power-hungry males are actually educated into prevention, if not too psychiatrically ill at the time. There are far too many archaic laws that must be removed immediately. And these antiquated laws are now being exposed in court when wrongdoing within the courts is so prevalent and costing for the victims yet again. And we desperately need a specialty court so that all of this can come around to some kind of sanity. Yeah, I mean, we've adjusted the way some courts proceed, for instance, like with a drugs court, where, you know, there's been yeah. some conversation about whether or not there's the opportunity to do something similar in cases that include sexual assault or domestic violence, whatever the case may be, and maybe it's time to do exactly that because it's, you know, I don't know how to use the number sometimes, but if it's somewhere in the neighborhood of only 10% of these types of crimes are, are even reported and the various reasons why, if we make it, if the landscape and the temperature doesn't change in how the proceedings unfold, then that number can only get worse. And what I mean by worse is fewer reports. Uh, I'll give you the final thoughts here this morning, Gwen, before I have to go. No, I just uh, am pleased that you were able to uh, let me do this because it's not a pleasant topic. But unfortunately, uh, we've got to start this as quickly as possible. And... Um, the fact, I, I haven't heard, and I don't know if you have either, any more information about uh, justice not taking over um, what's going on and, and the, um, uh, the courts taking over in this particular situation for uh, the specialty court. Understood, Gwen. I appreciate you making time for the show this morning. Thank you. Okay, thank you for having me. Take good care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, Fancy, you can click me out of two. Let's take a break, get back on track here. John's in the queue to talk about health care, and then lots of time to speak with you on the topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let us go to line number one. Good morning, John. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Uh, buddy, I want to throw out some bouquets this morning and some bricks. All right. Bouquets to the doctors, nurses, and all the health care staff, except for the Minister of Health, the Premier, and the former pre uh, Minister of Health. When Haggy was there, he always had a plan, a plan, a plan. Well, his plans never worked. And I'm not going to blame it only on him. I'm going to blame it on the former governments, whether they're PC, liberals, or what. Betty, when I got in Fairbanier Saturday morning, at, I checked in at 9.30. There was one doctor, and I think there was one nurse. I stayed there until after 12 o'clock Sunday morning. When I saw the doctor... Uh, he said to me that, uh, no, he was the only doctor on. It was two nurses came in at 10 o'clock. 
Now, I'm just wondering when Tom Osborne says, oh, the health care emergency in Whitburn is not open, uh, you can go to Carbonera or you can go to Placentia. But when you do, and there's one doctor and there's probably 50 patients, that doctor can't do his job. Okay. All right. So, I mean, there is a plan, whether or not the plan works, whether or not the plan has been implemented in a timely fashion, whether or not the programs and the suite of incentives to recruit, retain healthcare workers is sufficient or it's working at all. I guess we'll leave that up to folks and their individual interactions with the healthcare system. So there's the bricks and what comes in the form of a bouquet? Well, to all the doctors and nurses who are serving in hospitals. Okay. And I mean, I really thank them. I've had a lot of, uh, <laughs> I have a lot of interactions with doctors and nurses, and I'll tell you, I haven't got one complaint about them. They always did their job, and thanks to one doctor and a bunch of nurses, 22 years ago I had cancer. I'm still here, I'm still fighting, and I always will be as long as I can. So that is my big thing. Anyway, you know how to ask Mr. Singh the right questions. And I think that you should be in politics. Nah. I'm not (laughs) sure what I should be at. Um, But uh, anyway, the... And I don't know what else people wanted asked of Mr. Singer, what they made of what he had to say. But inside this healthcare system, you know, I think what we see is that there's just so much immediate concern that even some of the longer-term strategies are going to be more and more difficult to implement because people need the, the difference made today. And some of the big transformational changes, as itemized in the 10-year plan that people call the health accord, they're not necessarily about the system gets better today, but it will be better in time. And people don't have time. That's the problem that we face here now. Well, that's my problem. I don't have time. <laughs> Yeah, and if you're in need of help, then, of course, you don't have time. You know, it's fine for us to talk about the social determinants of health and how that can make the system different and fewer people interacting as frequently as they do with the system. But that is really a evolutionary thing as opposed to I need to reduce the number of people that are looking for a family doctor in this province today. I need to increase the number of registered nurses working in the province today. I need to change the scope of practice and uh, training for everybody else. Licensed practical nurses, nurse practitioners, social workers, pharmacists, respiratory and radiation therapists, all of them. But that that takes time. I, uh, I talked to some of, the pay, some of the people who are there in the hospital Saturday. And he said that Friday night, there was only one doctor on. Saturday, there was only one doctor on. Saturday night, there was only one doctor on. So, you know, uh, when you've got 40 or 50 people there waiting to see the doctor, uh, they don't sound very good. Not to me, anyway. No, I mean, I think everyone sees it. When you get into the system, I think people are, by and large, quite satisfied with the bedside manner and the care and the treatment that they get. There's, of course, going to be exceptions to that. The problem is getting in the system. I mean, that's what most people are feeling or saying is the number one concern. John, I'll give you the last word before I go to the news. Well, Patty, in 2000, I found out I had cancer. I struck the right urologist. And I struck the right people in nurses in the hospital. 
and I was treated royally. And that's the reason why I'm here today. So I've got I've got them to thank. Anyway, that's about all I've got to say, Patty. Appreciate the time, John. Take good care of yourself. And I thank you very much. All the best. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, there we go. Let's get to the 10 o'clock news pretty much on time. When we come back, certainly, if you didn't latch on to something I said off the top of the program or you haven't heard on the show recently, it does not mean it's not a topic or worth discussing. Whatever you want to talk about is what I want to talk about right after this. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Tony. You're on the air. Tony. Good morning, sir. Good morning. If you could turn on your radio, away we go. No problem. Uh, I got two topics. One, the main one is the, the dental, what Mr. Singh was just talking about. Okay. Uh, myself, uh, I'm a senior. I just had my teeth cleaned, and it cost me $371. Now, and I paid cash for it. Now, my I have a son who's profoundly deaf. He had his teeth cleaned Thursday past, and it cost $400. And I asked the dentist, uh, when did this kick in? For the, helping the, the people with dental problem, and he got to get work on his teeth costing $2,000. They told us, my dentist told me, that it do not kick in until next year. So I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a retired man, I'm on a pension, and my son is on, on uh, social assistance. He can't afford nothing, and our social assistance is not paying for nothing. So uh, how do I uh, come up with $2,000 to pay for his dental? I guess that's the rationale for why there was a dental care plan put in place. When do we kick in? When do we, when do we come in place? Well, it's fully operational in a couple of years from now for everybody. But they started last year where there was a benefit for children. Then they started this year and they began with the seniors demographic. And then by the time it becomes fully operational, I don't have any dates for exactly when the 18 to 35s get covered or the 35 to 54s, but that's the case. It won't be fully in place or fully operational, as they say, for a couple of years. Okay. All right. Now, uh, second topic, sir. Uh, Mrs. Cody. Uh, when she, before they got in politics, before, I can't remember, 10, 12, 11 years, when Danny, was, Danny Williams was in place, he closed that Newfoundland School for the Deaf, him and Darren King. That lady came to my door, knocked on my door, spoke to me for 45 minutes, and my main topic was to get the School for the Deaf open again for all the deaf children in Newfoundland. She told me, point blank, when she, she said, if she and Dwight Bob gets in power, they will bring it up and try and get the deaf school open. That lady's in politics, I say, 10 years or whatever. I've never heard her once say one thing about the diff school or the diff community of land. Thank God for Mr. Churchill, and he's, he won the case against the government. But how come our diff school is not open for all of the diff children in Newfoundland? Well, I mean, that's uh, not a question I can answer, and I'm not really sure it was a great idea to close that particular school, but... You know, they've put a new uh, class in place at East Point Elementary, but the problem with only having a school for the deaf on Topsail Road in St. John's is that there is hard of hearing or deaf children around the province. And so they didn't, if you didn't have the opportunity or the want to be separated for your child for the entirety of a school year, then you weren't getting the help you needed where you were. So for me, if we're going to have an actual inclusive model of education, then it's got to be for wherever your child is, whether it be on the spectrum or has ADHD or has a uh, problem with reading and comprehension 
comprehension or is deaf or is on the autism spectrum, whatever the case is, if we're going to pretend that we have an inclusive model, then we've got to put supports in place wherever the children are. Not make them, you know, leave your home in St. Anthony for the whole school year at seven years of age, live in St. John's with who knows who to go to the school for the deaf. So it sounds like it probably would be better for children who are close by this area, but maybe not so much for children elsewhere. Patty, uh, I've got to disagree with you, sir, because my son is deaf. I just, I'm from Bellon, and my son, I'm living in St. John's, closed deaf school. I've had seven different children, boys and girls, from Cornerbrook, uh, Calvary Valley, uh, Grossmorn, everywhere out that way, that are from out there, from Hero Bay, going to the deaf school, their families, yes, the children away from their mom and dads, but when they're in the school, they had a, a, like a home environment. And on the weekends, they come to my family or another different family, and they had the same kind of thing without their mother and father, yes. But after, after a couple of months, they went back home, but they got the proper education. They're not getting the proper education. My son was in the class, but then I was there, my wife was there teaching and helping them with five children or six children in the class at a time, not 35. No way can a child, any deaf child or hearing impaired, and my son, if you didn't know, just profoundly, severely, and moderate. Just three kinds of deafness in Newfoundland. My son was profoundly, he couldn't hear a bomb going off. But he learned and he got his education through the teachers of the deaf school. And I don't understand why all of the teachers that I had dealings with are not talking about getting the school open again. I know these people are now retired, but... There's got to be some t- children there or some teachers that will go back to school and open up that school for the children that needs the help. And our government, thanks to Danny Williams, the only promise, I think, one of the only promises in Canada, they haven't got a deaf school. And it's not right. I appreciate the time this morning, Tony. I understand your concerns. Thank you, sir, very much for listening to me. Take good care of yourself. Have a good day, sir. You too, Tony. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, I mean, that is a tricky one. And, you know, I don't have any lived experience, so I don't really know how to answer or speak to some of those issues. It certainly did seem that for children who were hard of hearing or deaf or had profound concerns, that the School for the Deaf with well-trained teachers uh, familiar with and able to teach with American Sign Language, because that's their language, it's an international language, is it just sounds like it makes so much more sense. You know, versus when you think, just even use Carter Churchill, as uh, Tony did for an example. For three years, he sat there in silence, getting absolutely no education. So we do indeed call it an inclusive uh, education model, but that can't mean simply that the children are all in the same school and that makes it inclusive because that's just the baby steps towards inclusivity, isn't it? So is it better to have a school for the deaf open? Certainly for the families who have gone through in the past, they'd say yes. You know, proof's in the pudding. You know, when you compare it to other children who are not getting the supports they need, and the Human Rights Commission is really quite clear on this one, and I do think that ruling, not only precedent-setting in that area, but will also be for other required supports in schools. Because, you know, we hear the same things every September, don't we? My child was in grade 5 last year, needed this, had it for most of the year. We come back the following September in grade 6, and now all of a sudden those supports aren't, uh, aren't in place. And the question is, why not? And that's an excellent question. All right, uh, let's go to line number two. Colin, you're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you this morning? Good morning to you. I want to make some comments on the lady who had just called in uh, earlier about the criminal justice system and how she perceives the criminal justice system to be operating. She uh, made comments, among other things, that 
defence lawyers are abusing complainants in criminal trials. There's nothing could be further from the truth. Well, I mean, we've seen the examples, and I don't know, look at me, for someone's perspective, arguing back on perspective is a bit of a fool's errand, but what we do know is that we've seen detailed documentation coming from, whether it be comments offered by judges, whether it be the approach that certain defense attorneys may take, that it has presented a an environment where it probably does dissuade people from coming forward, whether that be women or men, because the way that some of the folks who report a crime are dealt with, spoken to, questioned, is certainly not necessarily an effort to get to the facts of the matter, to get the actual get to the actual truth. It's more of a blame game. And that doesn't seem to work in the I don't think in society's best interest, let alone if we're talking about men or women. Well, you know, uh, criminal defense lawyers have a legal and an ethical obligation to represent the client. And part of that legal and ethical obligation is to zealously and vigorously defend the interests of the client. So where a client uh, is charged with a criminal offense, that person is presumed innocent and has a right to a trial and make full answer in defense to a charge. That includes, but is not limited to, a vigorous cross-examination. I think what's being conflated here is being subject to a vigorous cross-examination is being uh, uh, treated as abuse. And that's not necessarily the case, you know. Uh, the person who's on trial, uh, their liberty is at stake. They face the prospect of uh, getting a criminal record if they're found guilty and convicted. And they face the prospect of going to prison. Yeah, the basics of the adversarial system, yeah. Yeah, we have an adversarial system. In, you, you make an excellent point. We, we have an adversarial criminal justice system in this country. Uh, any witness who takes a stand in a criminal uh, trial, whether it's a complainant or anybody else. It could be a police officer, it could be a, uh, an expert witness, you know, it could be a physician, it could be a toxicologist. The other side gets to cross-examine them. Right, but here's where I think, you know, you used the word ethical. I'm pretty sure you did anyway. Yeah. So here's where I think there are serious questions that are fair questions to be asked about the ethical approach that some lawyers and judges, because remember, that whole SLUT walk that's now an international thing came directly from comments made by a sitting judge. I mean, there's something to be said for that. In addition to getting down to a vigorous defense, you know, if we're going to be continually talking about what she wore, how much she drank, then we're not actually looking for the truth. We're looking for someone to just have this speck of reasonable doubt planted in their mind because some people do indeed think what you wore or how much you drank was somehow an invitation to be assaulted when, if we're being realistic, it's not. I mean, if, if you wore a short skirt, that is by no means an invitation for someone to uh, come at you with an unwanted sexual attack or sexual violence or a rape or an assault or however people want to couch it. That's just not how anything works in this world. We can't allow people to uh, even, A, think that a short skirt means uh, that's an invitation for rape, or B, allow that for be a reason why a juror says, well, you know what, that was a pretty slinky dress, because so what? I mean, what we wear is not an invitation to be violated, whether it be physically or sexually. Same thing with the amount you drank. Look, 
People may indeed put themselves in precarious positions, may indeed have made some less than uh, stellar or the most wise decisions, but we all do that, and it should not end up with you being on the receiving end of unwanted sexual violence or physical violence or anything else under the sun, but we allow that to be a course of action in the courts, which I think comes across as patently unfair. You know, uh, with respect to how much uh, a complainant, for example, or any other witness in a criminal trial has had to drink, if they drink alcohol, and on the you know, uh, night or day in question of the alleged crime, that may be highly relevant to uh, recounting a narrative uh, in, with regards to statements to police and testimony in court. It, it's just your ability to recall events in a chronological manner and in a consistent manner, that, that may be relevant. If you've had a lot to drink, uh, you're going to be taking the task on that. It may be an issue with recount <clears throat> and chronological issues, even though, uh, despite whatever issue we're talking about, if it was a traumatic event, then there's also all sorts of problems uh, associated with being traumatized with your ability to concisely and chronologically accurately uh, report all the goings on. But even if you just stick with things like what you're wearing, th- there's just no defense for that to be the go-to linchpin of someone's defense, in my personal opinion. That's all. I'm only going to offer my own opinion in this side of the conversation. But those things, you know, I think there's a a societal question here. I don't know the veracity of some of the numbers thrown around. There's no way that anyone knows for sure. But if the account is, and we'll just use for round number. I don't know if it's accurate or not. Only 10% of these types of crimes were reported. If some of the issues are because the lack of willingness to report is about being retried and or the way that some uh, victims or alleged victims are treated or spoken to or questioned, if that reduces the numbers of people coming forward, then all that really does, especially if it actually really happened, is then we have a societal issue where so many people out there who have been the perpetrators of these crimes are never taken to task. That is bad for every single person in the country, no matter how we slice it. So getting it right, and it's never going to be perfect, and the adversarial system is a cornerstone, but some of what we see... You know full well some uh, women or men will be reading these stories in the paper or online or hearing them on this program and saying, I'm not doing that to myself, and that's not good for any of us. You know, it's, um, we just had two trials in the last two or three months in uh, St. John's. Uh, two women, uh, two separate cases, were put on trial for violent offenses. Uh, one was a school teacher, yep. and she was facing a sexual exploitation charge against one of her uh, former students. She had to be convicted of that offense. It would have been a mandatory minimum, one year in jail. Uh, she pl- she pled not guilty to that charge. She went to trial in the Supreme Court, had a trial before a Supreme Court justice with no jury. She was acquitted. One of the reasons she was acquitted was the vigorous cross-examination of the complainant. And the judge found as a fact that he did not believe the complainant. He pretty much called him a liar. You know, what for that vigorous cross-examination by a very experienced... Uh, yeah, disputes about where in the vehicle or those types of things. I but, mean, but they're, they're all live issues, Patty. Yeah. Oh, man. They're all live issues. When did it happen? Where did it happen? If you can't recall that, the accused is entitled to an acquittal, which he was in this case. In the other case, it was a police officer who was just found guilty of uh, assault causing bodily harm and assault on an intimate partner. Mm-hmm. She was convicted. It all comes down to credibility. 
And credibility is a question of fact for the, for the trial judge in a bench trial or yeah. the jury. It also should be a question of whether or not it actually happened. If it was in the front seat, the back seat, 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, you know, those are indeed factors that will be taken into account. Does it answer the question as to whether or not the allegation is actually accurate or not? So, I mean, that's what kind of gets away from us a little bit because if it's simply about the expertise and the style and the record and the uh, the notoriety associated with, associated with the attorney, then we get ourselves into theatrics of justice as opposed to justice, possibly. And that, I mean, people bring their reputations with them, right? That's so right. if you see uh, an attorney representing a defendant who's in the news, has the reputation, oh, boy, that, that lawyer is great, you know, all of a sudden that gives that defendant a possible leg up that, oh, my God, I mean, they got this attorney. There must be some faith there. Just watch this guy or this lady roll in the courtroom. Wow, they're magnificent. And sometimes we get distracted. We get distracted by personality and emotion versus fact and perception. It's just part and parcel. I know you can never do away with all that because that's just kind of how the world works. But making it better and easier, more equitable and fair, I don't see the downside. It doesn't mean you blow it up and you start from scratch because I don't think that's, once again, in anyone's best interest. But uh, anyway, final thoughts, Colin, then I have to go to the break. You know, we, we saw with uh, uh, over the last few years one of the most notorious uh, criminal trials in, in, in at least the last 10, 15 years in this country was Gomeshi. And he had three complainants testifying against him. And he had a lawyer who uh, zealously and vigorously defended her client and challenged the complainants on their on their testimony and on their facts as asserted. And the judge found they were all liars. You know, he found as fact that they were not telling the truth. They were playing hard and fast with the truth. That's it. It comes down to credibility. If you're not believable, your testimony is given very little or no weight. And you wonder how inherent bias kicks in. Like, for instance, if you were a listener and a fan of Gameshi, then you go in there with a built-in thought. And, you you know, it might be a different burden of proof required for that person versus someone who had no idea who Gameshi was and or his attorney, who is a very notable attorney in this country and carries a big, big stick. Uh, Anywho, I've got to get to the break, Colin, but points understood, and I appreciate the time. Cheers. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, the quick one before we get to the break is regarding the ambulance service out of Whitburn. Now, we know Wade Smith is taking the province to court about the, uh, his contract being terminated, whether or not the compliance issues and the process was followed. But now, as we know this was going to be the case, the ambulance that replaces Smith simply comes from the health sciences. So when we are simply shuffling around assets, we're not necessarily making it any better for anyone in either region, are we? Let's take a break. When we come back, the topic is up to you. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. And welcome back to the program. Well, we had a bit of a brief chat with Minister of Health Community Services, Tom Osborne, at the end of last week. And he basically wanted to come in and talk uh, talk about the final amalgamation of the four regional health authorities into one. And now that's happened, officially. But the question after that is, now what? Because, you know, this was a recommendation made by Moya Green and her team in the Premier's Economic Recovery Report. It's also a recommendation made inside the Health Accord. 
And you know what? Some of the references to how it makes the system better, okay. So our information will be digitized and available online because now when you do a patient transfer, we have to print off the record, put them with the patient, either in their vehicle or in the back of an ambulance for transport so the, uh, the next healthcare professional they ha see will have their file. As opposed to everyone in the system, if they need the information, not just for Curie's looky-loos, but if they need the information, it's there. Okay, that makes sense. Then there's the opportunity, once again, this is in the, just in the air sensibility, and it should have been in place anyway. It's about procurement. So now, as opposed to going out with an RFP from four different entities, there will be one. So purchasing power has been increased, and no question that comes with some jobs being identified to go by the wayside. There were, we're told there will not be layoffs. The job loss or the right-sizing, whatever you want to call it, will be satisfied through attrition versus layoffs. So if it's access to our health information, which we kind of could have done inside of four, but the procurement and purchasing power that makes all the sense in the world, there has been, you know, the CEO for the one regional health authority will be David Diamond, who was at the helm of Eastern Health. They have indeed hired as chief operating officers for the five areas. There's going to be five. That will be Eastern Urban, Eastern Rural, Central, Western, and Labrador Grenfell. So these people are in place, but the big questions as to, okay, now what? Because it has to be more beyond simply procurement, purchasing power, and health information. There's going to be the questions asked about, uh, I guess, a few. Where the jobs are going to be, number one. Secondly, what does that mean for overall delivery? If it's simply about the bureaucratic issues, then that can have some positive impact on the system for you and me as we engage or interact with it. But I don't think people have a really clear understanding of what this means. Now, without question, inside of four regional health authorities, there has to be a just very natural and normal what people like to call a bloat, especially in mid-management ranks. So if that's all only going to be satisfied through attrition, then I guess this is just one step forward towards making the system a little bit more sensible because there is a, lot, a lack of sense inside of some of these moving parts inside of healthcare. Also, I've got some follow-up emails and people support whatever side of the coin that they're interested in. And this is regarding a call we had last week about mainland and their water issue, not mainland Canada, but mainland the community here on the Port of Port Peninsula. They've got concerns with their water. Some of the folks in the area are making a direct link with World Energy GH2, the work they've done in an effort to construct this meteorological data compilation tower, right? So they're saying that it was that commercial or industrial work done which has caused problems with Le Contre's Brook, which is the secondary water source in mainland. They actually had to turn off uh, some of the supply of water to the community because the reservoir was getting so low. The Department of the Environment says that they've done four separate tests regarding the quality of drinking water in the community and given it the thumbs up. They say, you know, whether it be things with turbidity or color, that doesn't mean that it's not safe to drink. Folks in the area think well, they don't care they, and they don't believe it and they think that there's absolutely a problem. One stems from a person who says that they smelled a hydrocarbon-like aroma in and around the water supply area, which has, of course, and so it should, trigger tests. So we've got a bit of a standoff here. World Energy says that they are being monitored by the department and DFO regarding waterways and whatever implication their commercial work is bringing to bear. They also have, of course, offered some experts in the field to come into the community to get down to a firm understanding of exactly what's going on with the water supply system. So, but the... The local service district has rejected that. Not really sure why. 
because what we have now are folks who are opposed to the wind project and say that it's had this impact on the water. We have the community, of course, or the company, pardon me, with their own best interest, and they're saying they have, you know, they're not causing the problem and the water's safe to drink. So I would imagine it's in everyone's best interest if what we do is we bring in the experts who are standalone. They're not beholden to anybody. They're looking at the water quality, doing their own uh, independent testing, and coming back with a report that maybe can identify a way to improve water supply in the area versus try to lay the blame on one entity or another one project or another one bit of earth moved or whatever the case may be. All right, quick check-in on the Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. You know what to do. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, Leo's there to talk a little bit about healthcare and then whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Rex. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad. Thanks for asking. How you doing? Uh, good. Listen, I just wanted to call. I heard your opening comments. I was driving. I heard your opening comments um, uh, with regard to, I believe you made a comment that expanding the scope of nurses uh, to allow to send consults to to specialists or something. Well, there's some expansion announcement coming. Uh, there was a few dribs and drabs about what it might include. So I think that press conference is actually happening right this very minute. So as soon as I get more details, we will talk about it because that's a complaint coming from a bunch of healthcare professionals, isn't it? I'm trained and oh, educated to do more than they allow me to do. Yes. Now, there's, there, I think it gets a bit complicated. This is why I wanted to call today because I'm going to tell you a little experience I had. Okay. Is that, uh, I mean, for the last year, I mean, uh, I've been going through some uh, medical issues that I couldn't get no satisfaction with doctors. I, I have no family doctor, and that's the issue. And I've been going and seeing doctors at clinics that is, that is done for that. But the problem is you're not getting the, reg the same doctor. And uh, like I say, the things that have been said to me uh, about my situation you know, I really can't say on the air because you know why? Because it will make the medical professions look really stupid. Okay? Well, you and, can say whatever you like, yeah. Yeah, so then, of course, I said, probably I'll look at getting a, uh, going outside the province and paying for my own, uh, well, I wanted to get an MRI, okay? So mm -hmm. I called this clinic in, in Nova Scotia to look at uh, getting an MRI. And the first thing... She said, she said, we're going to need a consult from your family doctor. I said, I don't have no family doctor. And she said, well, we can't do anything for you because we need to send a report to a doctor. The problem is with the, if you don't have a family doctor and you're looking to get an MRI, you ain't going to get one. They won't even, and, and the other doctors that you see at clinics, um, unless you, you are totally unable to walk and you're in a wheelchair, uh, you will not get an MRI uh, quickly, and it may take up to two or three years. But the problem is, like I said, is that a nurse can probably get expanded scope, but when that report comes back, it has to go to someone. And if it's not going to the person who uh, had the consult, then, of course, uh, it's a waste of time of doing the money. It's, it's a waste of time of having it done because you, you are not going to see anyone. So when I was speaking to this clinic in Nova Scotia, she said, she said, you're going to have to get someone to get uh, to, to, to sign off on it. 
I can probably get someone to sign off on it, but they're not going to follow it up. Like the report will come back, and where where's it going to go? You know, if it's something that I need done, and that's the problem. And the other problem mix is, I know from experience from other family members, is that some doctors in this province will not accept the findings of uh, MRI done outside the province. Not all, but some, from my understanding, because I know a family member who had. Who, who, who was in that similar situation because he had to wait two or three years. And if he had to wait two or three years, the man would probably be crippled and unable to function as a human being. Right. You know, here's what we don't know about this announcement that I, I think is actually happening right this minute is, you know, beyond the scope of practice being extended or maximized, it's about on the heels of. So I think you make an interesting point there is that it's one thing for the registered nurse to be able to, uh, put you on to the next specialist and or to order some of these diagnostics tests or what have you. But then what? Because if it just means that the test was done but doesn't get in the hands of the next level of healthcare or the next healthcare professional, then all we did is a test. <laughs> we didn't actually react to it. But now, if that means if the nurse can say, okay, I'm going to schedule you for an MRI, and then upon it being read by the radiation therapist, uh, I will have the authority to then put you on to the next uh, stage of treatment or specialist or what have you, then maybe we have made an, a, a positive step forward. But we don't know what's included in the announcement because I haven't heard the details yet. No, and, and I think that's important. Uh, whoever, who, well, whoever signs that paper, that person, I don't care if it's a... If it's an advanced care paramedic, I don't care if it's a nurse, I don't care if it's a secretary, but they need to have a process in place to follow up. And that's important. If that don't happen, we're back where we started again. Yeah, I, I agree. So, you know, just doing things halfway is going to be of very little value. But I'm going to reserve any judgment on it until I see what it actually includes because... That's where the devil belongs or resides, is in the details. Oh, oh absolutely. And like I say, you happen to mention, I was driving and say, well, I was saying to myself, I tried to get an MRI outside the province, but I haven't got a family doctor, and they need to send it to a family doctor so someone can follow her up. And I'm saying to myself, hmm. I mean, I was willing to spend my own money because there's such, there, there's such a delay or there's such a bad atmosphere in healthcare in Newfoundland is that even doctors are aware of it, and they said, listen, it's going to take two or two or three years to get done. But listen, people can't wait two or three years to get, a, get an MRI on, on legs or backs because what are you going to do? What is it? Are they telling us sit in a wheelchair and go home and, and die? I don't know. I don't know either, but I am quite anxious to hear what was said at this particular press briefing. I assume we have someone there. I hope we have someone there. Maybe they'll be able to bring us some additional details uh, sooner rather than later this morning. Yes, and Penny, listen, my last comment will be, sure. listen, this is a positive step for healthcare, but they got to go that step further like we're talking today. If they don't do that, we're no further ahead. Hard to argue with that one. I appreciate the time. Thank you, Rex. No, no trouble. Thank you very much. Take good care. Yeah, right. There we go. That's an important point. Just allowing for additional work to be done doesn't mean that we've conquered that particular outstanding issue. Interesting. Uh, let's go to line number one. Leo, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Uh, I'm going to go back a little bit in time now as far as the health care system is concerned. Back to the early 60s when we were having our children. And uh, I remember one of them got sick, and we phoned the doctor. 
And he wasn't in, and they said that he'd be alive sometime. But around 11 o'clock that night, it was a stormy night too, worst kind of a night, uh, the phone rang, and it was the doctor, and he was uh, at the West End at that time. That was Broadway there in Cornerbrook, and that he'd be along. About half past 11, he came to the door, brushing the snow off himself. And that, well, I always remember him, and that man was Dr. Farrell, Dr. Tom Farrell. And I always had a lot of respect for that fellow, I'll tell you that. But right now, as far as I'm concerned, this might be my dirty mind or whatever, but as far as I'm concerned, the doctors are spending more time spending their money than they are working for it. This is why we got shortage of doctors. Is why? Sorry? I'd say they're spending more time spending their money than they are working for it. Okay, so how do we dictate what a doctor does? Well, we if don't. they work in the public system in the hospital, for instance, to maintain privileges, there's a certain amount of work that needs to be done, whether it be on the uh, School of Medicine side and or with patient load, all of those types of things. But, for instance, if I'm a family doctor, I'm basically an independent contractor. And we know this to be true because last year we lost 122 doctors. We uh, new licenses 215 doctors, so a net, less of, a net loss of seven. And some of those doctors said, I don't want to work full time. I'll do locums, walk-in yes, clinics, yeah. and do some other pure research, possibly. But if I'm a family doctor, then who's who, like who's able to tell them that you must do this, you must do that? Yeah, well, so, I mean, say, in an, if you're going to work, I mean, say, now I know doctors are, well, what you call them, independent contractors or whatever, but still, for all, there must be some rule on them. But as far as I'm concerned, too, MCP was the biggest pandemic that we ever went, went into. Because after MCP, there was more people went to the hospitals and doctors, and they're blocking everything. They're they're they're, they're there blocking everything, and they they got probably a, a ferret jammed or a pimple on their behind, and 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 they're blocking the whole system. Yes, I don't know what other system you put in place if we're going to talk about universal health care and the ability for doctors and others to build a system. I'm not sure how else that. There's not much you can do about that. I mean, say, but it is, that, that is. And, I mean, as far as the 130,000 people in Newfoundland that want, without a doctor, how many of them wants a doctor? I mean, there's a lot of things that I'm without, but I can do without. Yeah, but well, I, I think never there's... I've seen a doctor until I was 30 or 40 years old. Fair enough, but I think, I think people want to have a doctor. I mean, it just, yeah. you know, because you don't know when you might need the services of a licensed uh, family doctor or anyone else, but if you don't have one and something pops up, then you find yourself in the emergency room or lined up outside of a walk-in clinic or what have you, which is certainly the furthest thing from ideal. So people not might like, get a family doctor and very sparingly go visit them, but at least they got them, and they're on the roster, and they can call the number and say, okay, I'd like to see Dr. Matthews, and they say, okay, we can get you in next week or, or whatever. So I think people need a doctor. The confusion I have with that, Leo, is we got rackets out there about how many people are looking for a family doctor. The yes, research done by the NLMA says 136,000 people looking for a family doctor. The problem says that number's closer to 50. I have an idea. MCP knows. We, MCP knows how many people have been a patient of a doctor and are on their roster and have billed MCP. I think we can come up with a number that doesn't have the wide gap of 50 versus 136. Yes, there's a big in-between there, for sure. Yeah. 
But anyway, that's my goal for this morning. Thanks a lot for taking my call. Appreciate your time, Leo. Yeah, okay. Take care. All the best. All right, uh, break time. Pretty much on time. Mm-hmm. When we come back, Steve Zer wants to talk about the ambulance business. And then we're speaking with you. Industry, business, taxes, the economy, whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Steve. You're on the air. Uh, I don't even know where to start with this. Okay. The operators, ambulance operators and the problems... Uh, I'm going to assume we all got copies of our contracts Friday afternoon. And it's essentially signed them over of business is pretty much what the contract states. Uh, the raises that were supposed to be given to our crews across the province. They were supposed to get 2% retro pay for last year. They were supposed to get another 2% increase April 1st of this year. They were supposed to get a $2,000 retention bonus. On Friday afternoon, I was informed all that stuff now was out the window. The government themselves will be dealing with every EMR, uh, primary care paramedic, and advanced care paramedic across the province. They're going to get paid a $1,000 retention bonus sometime in May or June. The government's going to notify every practitioner around the middle of the month. And they're going to get $950 retro pay, which is about half what they're supposed to be getting. The government's going to pay it themselves. It's not coming through any of the operators. And I reviewed the stuff dealing with the uh, individuals that work at the seven bases that we operate. In the balance that they're getting about half what they should have been getting. As an example, I've got a lot of uh, paramedics that make in the area between seventy and eighty thousand dollars a year. So we'll take the top scale, eighty thousand dollars. They should be getting eighteen hundred dollars in retro pay. They're going to get nine hundred and fifty. They should be getting a two thousand dollar retention bonus. They're going to get a thousand. Oh, by the way, they're not increasing the wages. The wages are staying exactly as they are right now. Next year in March, they're going to get nineteen hundred dollars in retro pay. Uh, from the government, and they're going to get another $1,000 in the uh, retention bonus. Uh, that is about half of what was agreed to. Operators aren't de- aren't doing it. It's the government themselves and the way they've uh, manipulated and maneuvered the contracts around that we'll be doing this right now. And they're going to have to sign some type of agreement with the government to stay for however long the government's going to decide in this uh, proposal. So my people are getting shafted by about 50% of what they should be getting. Uh, with the government, but not dealing with uh, the operators. And as an example, if the $2,000 retention bonus came out, as I've already admitted with all my crews two months ago, once I got a copy of the email, that, yeah, I'm just going to pay the $2,000 and have done of it. Uh, the 2%, yeah, I'm going to calculate the 2% of whatever your uh, wages were based on your T4s for last year. So right off the bat, the people that work for me are getting about 50% of what you should be getting. Oh, the contract expires next year in April. Uh, we have no idea if we're still going to be in business then or not. I've got two new ambulances ordered for a cost of $270,000. One is supposed to be delivered in two months. The next one is supposed to be delivered in five months. So as an operator right now, with all the uncertainty going on, what in the hell do I do? Do I buy those machines or not? Because I have no idea if I'll even be around. Just so I have a firm understanding here, Steve. So on Friday, you were you found out this difference took place, but was not the retro pay and bump uh, was that not part of a contract? It was uh, agreed on by the associations as part of the contract. Apparently, some of the operators uh, wouldn't agree to that. 
uh, be what it is, is I really don't care what other operators do, but I owe some loyalty to the people that work with our companies. A lot of them have been around for between 10 and 15 years. They deserve to be treated as human beings, not as some second-class citizens because the government got uh, their opinion on how things probably should or should be done. Every paramedic in the EMR in the province right now are being shafted by the government. Okay, so if the associations agreed to this, so that just means to me there was an agreement in principle. Did any private operator take it a step further and have it formally uh, made a part of their standing contract? Uh, no, it's not, in, it's not included in our contracts. The contracts were given to us on Friday afternoon, and I received the phone call from Mr. Wayne Young that this is how it was going to be, and it's essentially take it or leave it. I have no. I'm not a member of the associations. I never have been. Is I'm one of the few independents left in the province. Uh, I don't have a lot of the issues that other operators have, because I'll take my contract when I get it, and it's already on its way to the bases that I operate. Here's the contract. How do we make it work, gentlemen and ladies? Well, I'll, I'll put the contract on the table and say, here it is. Here's the pie. How do you how do you want it cut off? I wonder what even some of the most recent announcements really actually mean. There's so little detail associated with consolidating 60 different services into one, with some exemptions for more rural, remote parts of the province. We don't know where they are or how it's going to work. We don't know what the consultation timeline will be to bring someone in to help government create this new public entity. We don't know if that's going to mean fewer ambulances or fewer paramedics. We're not sure if it's going to be your basic hub-and-spoke hub uh, model for dispatch centralized. So... Your thoughts on that announcement in full, because I know it takes away your business, or very very possibly takes away some of your business opportunities. So what do you make of the problems as move down this road? Theoretically, and I'll just use round numbers to keep it very simple. I had businesses that six months ago were worth, I'm going to say, a million dollars. Uh, right now, if I wanted to sell those businesses, they're worth zero. The businesses aren't worth the paper that the contracts are written on right now. Who am I going to sell to? What is the government going to do? Is the government going to take uh, my contracts and run them themselves? If they do, what happens to all the people that work with our companies? What happens to their seniority? What happens to their shift schedules? Because the, the crews at the different bases that operate with us, they pretty much set their own schedules. Here's the required number of hours that had to be covered. How do you people want to do it? So I, I normally work couples together. I have husband and wife team. I have four of those uh, situations where I have husbands and wives and I work them on the same shift so they, they have their time off together and they work together. Uh, what happens six, seven, eight months from now with the government? What happens to the seniority? What happens to the people who are supervisors? Uh, what happens to their pay rates? There's, there is a lot more uncertainty now than there has ever been. No arguments here. I would imagine though the paramedics given the fact that we so desperately need them. But I think that goes back to my first question. How many ambulances compared to today will be on the ground? How many paramedics compared to today will be needed for those ambulances? But the paramedics have, they carry a pretty solid piece of leverage here, don't they? Because we need them, we need them badly, we can't afford to lose any of them. So I don't know the specific answers to transferring uh, uh, 
seniority or how they're going to manage their hours or the authority they'll have that you afford to, for instance, the husband and wife example that you offered. But those are good questions and one we would all like answers to. But I don't imagine any of those answers are forthcoming until the, well, whoever and whenever this consultant or consultants are in and maybe can help us fill in the blanks. But the problem there is we never get to speak to these people. They're nameless and faceless and we simply will get the same answers to the same questions from the minister's office. Well, if I ask the minister's office what's going to happen to our companies, is no one knows. If I'm talking to a crew member, well, what happens to my seniority? I don't know. What happens to my rates of pay? I don't know. What happens to my schedules? I don't know. Are you going to be around a year from now? I don't know. I can't answer any of the questions for the people who have been working with us for years. And these are mostly young people who have purchased homes in the area, have started families in the different towns that they're in. And right now is... I know I talked to a lot of my senior paramedics. They are looking for jobs elsewhere because there's so much uncertainty going on in Newfoundland right now. Where are you operating, Steve? I operate out of Port of Bass, Padre Valley, Jeffries, North Point on the northern peninsula, Woody Point, Point Lemmington in the central Newfoundland, and the St. Brides on the east coast. So pretty wide swath when you go all the way from Port of Bass to uh, somewhere in St. Mary's Bay. Uh, I appreciate yep. the time this morning, Steve. These are all the types of questions that we're going to put forward to the minister. But like I mentioned, I'll be pretty surprised if we get any meat on those bones until we get a lot closer to the process being better understood by government, which unfortunately comes with another very likely highly paid consultant. Anyway. Yeah. And the next question comes with these two ambulances I have ordered. The cost of those machines is $270,000. So do I purchase those machines knowing that Six, seven, eight months from now, I may not even be here. Do I take on that kind of debt right now? Or do I, and I hate using terminology, do I go to Ontario somewhere, buy a piece of garbage of an ambulance for $35,000, $40,000, put it on the road because it will pass inspection and use that for the next year? Fair enough. I'm glad it's not my decision to have to entertain. Uh, Steve, thanks for adding these additional questions and concerns to my plate, because I'll see what we can do over the next weeks and months to get some uh, further details. But thank you for this, and good luck, Steve. Okay, thank you kindly. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. There you go. There, You know, it was being heralded as one of the biggest things in the budget. You know, because we hear the complaints. And there's some of the notable communities that we've paid uh, some contractual attention to. And I don't mean my contract with them, because I don't have one, but the government's relationship with them. So, of course, the Cape Royals and Trapassies and Whitburns. But Steve Carey paints a very clear picture of now there's just as much unknowns as there was before the announcement of consolidating some 60 different services. Anyway, let's take a break for the 11 o'clock news. When we're coming back from there, Marlene's in the queue. We appreciate your patience, Marlene. And then we're speaking to you about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your requests to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let us, oh, Fonce, you're in charge. Let's go. Line number three, Marlene, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How you doing? Doing great. How about you? Pretty good. Um, I was listening to the gentleman talking about physicians and the shortage of physicians, and um, I've been without a physician for two years now. Um, and I was a cancer-based patient when I lost my physician. So I've managed to keep my specialists along the line. 
um, to be able to monitor those kind of situations. But I really do feel for the people that don't have a physician. I'm in their same shoes. Um, one thing that a message that I would, I guess I'll preface this with, I worked in healthcare for 12 years as a public health nurse in Nova Scotia. Um, I was ahead of an audit of a fairly large hospital in Nova Scotia at that time. And the, the things that we found in that audit were that if you look to the people that are doing the jobs, the people that are on the floor, the, the people that are um, seeing what's happening every day for answers, you probably are going to get the best answers that you can. Um, the one main thing that I have great passion about with this lack shortage of doctors, because um, it's happening everywhere across the whole country, as we know, is the lack of thought about where we're going to be in 10 to 20 years. So when you look at the numbers of people that they're putting into med school just here in at Memorial, um, I had my daughter's friends were entered into med school and I knew people. So I saw a list of the number of people that were admitted and I went through it. And you look at um, the numbers haven't really increased that much. And the numbers have actually skewed a little bit more to um, more female enter people entering than male. And we also know that, that the, the nature, as this gentleman suggested, um, the nature of how physicians work today is not always the same, and that's fine. Like, we have to respect that people have to have a work-life balance. And nobody has an expectation that we're going back to how it was many years ago with physicians visiting in the home. But if we know that um, you have 60% of the people entering med school that, are, that identify as female and that at some point in time they may um, be having children, those, those people are all going to be of the age of having children at the same time, which for all of us, whether you're male or female, once you have children, that does affect how much you really might want to work. So you're going to decrease the amount of hours that you have. And I think that the, the powers to be really need to take this opportunity, not to look at the shortage that we have today, which is great, but where are we going to be in 10 to 20 years if we're not changing the numbers of people that are going into to medical schools um, and looking at how many of those people want to be specialists and, specialists and how many actually want to be GPs in the long run. So are you, it's not, I hate boiling things down to very basics, but are you simply suggesting that we expand the number of seats offered in the, I think there's 17 medical schools in the country as a starting point? I feel that that's a good starting point, but to also you know, I'm, I'm trying to be sensitive about how I word this, but to also be looking at the composite of those people. And, and if you have, um, you know, when you interview for, for people going into med school, I don't know how that goes. I've never done it. Um, do you ask questions like, you know, do they want to be specialists? How many are entering that want to be general practitioners? And how many are entering that want to go into a family practice um, experience because those two things are very different from one mm -hmm. another right um and also how you know what it's a question you can't ask obviously is you know how big a family do you want to have in the long run but no i mean in the general i'm a, i'm an employer now and i know that um looking at young people there is a shift towards working less hours i guess what my point is in every field 
So there is a shift of people and, you know, there's countries that have um, said we're going to do a four-day work week. So if we know all that's coming and you don't shift those numbers up automatically because of that, how are we going to fix the problem? Like it's just, it's just going to be exacerbated in the long run if you don't start looking to that far in the future and what's it going to look like then. Yeah, because you wouldn't have hard and fast answers that you're going to be able to hold mid-school students to in the long run because you may indeed go in thinking, well, I'd like to do this, but another discipline proves to be much more attractive or whatever the case may be, but I completely get your point. So in addition to that, you know, we've got issues where we have, I know there's been some proposals about national accreditation or removing provincial barriers and mobility issues to be addressed, which can be partially helpful. In addition to what you're saying, the numbers that we hear of Canadians, Canadian citizens, that trained abroad, Ireland, Australia, the States, wherever, it, their inability to get a residency in this country is ridiculous. It's territorial issues that's governed by the colleges, which should not be the case. We cannot have barriers put in place by umbrella organizations that are in the business of healthcare. I mean, if you're born in this city and you couldn't get into Mons Med School, but you got into uh, a college in Ireland, which would be very, very similar to medical training here, you should be able to come home and not be, have it held against you that you couldn't get into a highly competitive seat, one of 65 at Munz Med School, for instance, uh, for people from this province. So there's a bunch of different things that I think we paid some attention to concurrently. We could probably ease the system. And here's where I, one more, and then I'll let you continue on because I really appreciate your points. Is we're told, and it's true based on numbers, there's more doctors and more nurses in this province than ever before. And yet we find ourselves in this crisis, which has been developing for years. So we're not even really sure how many doctors here, for instance, have a full complement on their patient roster, or they're simply doing pure research, or they're just doing enough to, uh, to satisfy their own work-life balance, or whatever the case may be, because we just throw out these big headline-grabbing numbers, but no real firm understanding as, as to what they mean. Right. And so, you know, in a, in, a, in a business world, we would look at full-time equivalents. So how many full-time equivalent physicians are here? And not based on the 80-hour work week of years gone by, but just on a regular 40-hour work week. And then we need to figure out how we're going to boost those numbers to get the right amount of 40-hour equivalent physicians. Because we're gone are the days of a physician who wants to work 15, 20 hours a day. People want to be able to have a work-life balance no matter what they're doing. They do. And, of course, again, these things will change and evolve over time once you get your feet firmly planted on the ground as a graduated medical, uh, medical professional and the timelines for meeting someone that you'll start a family with and what the aspirations of that person will be. So right. there's a lot to consider, which I think, you know, all of these things all also go back to the deputy minister responsible for recruitment and retention to develop plans for said both aforementioned categories because it's different for everybody. You know, not only where you work, but how you work, how much you work, how little you work, you know, whether or not you're trying to uh, become the next chief of cardiology or you're simply happy enough to be in the operating theater at your, I was going to say convenience, but that's not a fair word. But uh, no. <laughs> Right, so, you know, yeah. I sometimes I have to check myself when we're live. But yeah, Right, anyway. and so I don't, like, I don't know whether, there is nothing to, to make us say the doctor has to do this. So how do we, like, how do you figure it out if you can't make, there has to be some method of contracting people when you hire them that they're going to give you some amount of time or workload. I don't, like, I mean, I don't know what that would look like or what it is, but I think 
part of the problem is we, as you said, we don't know. We have more doctors than we have ever had, but we we have so many people that don't have physicians. Like, so somebody needs to figure out why is that? Like, what's going on? And then how do we make um, the healthcare system more accountable in that way? I, I think the reference there is to a straight, uh, straightforward service agreement. You know, because I am subsidizing the education of those AD med students. I am. It's just well understood in this province. That's how we roll. So with that, and I'm told that it can't work, but the reasons offered as to why it can't are pretty flimsy in my opinion. So why not? I mean, you're in Mun's Med School. You want it to be in Mun Med School. It's highly competitive. You get a seat, all with the going into it, understanding that that means I'm going to work for some three years, five years, pick a number upon graduation to, you know, account for some of the subsidized education I received at this particular school. I don't know what's wrong with that. I I really have no earthly idea. But people in the industry who want their mobility protected at all costs, they tell me it, it can't work, but I'm sure it can. I see. I feel it could work, and I and I mean, you're not asking for a lifetime. You're asking for a short period of time, um, and I think then you would have a continuous stream of people that are coming out that may fill some of the needs. Yeah, there's a bunch of these contractual things that I think get left unsaid. I had this conversation with a vet coffee. Now, of course, we're not talking doctors; they were talking registered nurses. If I have a chance to work as a private uh, traveling nurse, to work less, get paid more then I'm probably going to give that some care, very careful consideration. But what we haven't done there is uh, put a, some sort of non-compete into their contract. For instance, I have one. If I quit today and someone else in the media world offers me a job, I've got, a, I think it's 12 months before I, I'm allowed to take that job, so the 12 months of cooling my heels. Why don't we put that in place for registered nurses? We have to protect the system. It's not to try to threaten their opportunities in this world, but protecting the system as the public offering has got to play a role here. I don't know why we don't do these things. Yeah. Well, thank you. I do have to get going, but it was a great conversation. It was nice to speak with you, Marlene. Thank you. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, so there's a in-tune perspective being offered. And some of these things are complicated. Of course they are. No one's pretending that they're not. But there seems to me, like, I am curious to hear what uh, details were associated with the announcement regarding registered nurses and whatever capabilities they'll be allowed to bring forward. Okay, I see it here uh, on BOCM.com's front page. I'll give that... Uh, look during this particular break. There's also a story up at VOCM.com regarding the crab price negotiations. The both sides, the Association of Seafood Producers and the FFAW, pardon me, have put their submissions forward. We spoke with someone last week, I believe it was Pamela Patton from CNL, saying that the gap between the prices was about a dollar forty. And inside this world of the total allowable catch, which there has been an eight point four percent increase this year, a dollar forty is a wide margin. Because I think it was like three forty versus two bucks or thereabouts. I'll, I'll get those numbers confirmed. But let's take that break. When we come back, the topic is entirely up to you. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line one. Madonna, you're on the air. Oh, hi. Good morning. I've been listening to your program. Uh, Chef, two things on my mind. At the moment, it was I docked in uh, Nova Scotia, uh, Port of Bass, nine days ago, a Saturday morning. Okay. And before we were on the road very far, maybe three cars off the ferry boat, these two double play, what would you call them, plows that take up both lanes? They were trying to clear the, the, the slush and the hard 
rock, I guess, rock, hard ice off the center. You couldn't, you could not change lanes for the two plows. I think the ferry boat still had trucks on it because the high road was blocked with two plows. They must have started when they saw the boat dock. I found it disgrace, just disgraceful that we could not drive. We're just, everybody's happy to get in Newfoundland. And wait just a minute, please. I just realized I still got you on the air. No worries. So what would be anyway, disgraceful about it? Was, okay. nobody, could, nobody could pass because the plough was taken to slush off the, the double lanes. I don't know if you understand what I'm trying to explain. Yeah, I see it all the time. It happens everywhere. It's not simply a, uh, a ferry-related matter. But I guess the yeah, concept but is... Why didn't, they start, why didn't they start like a half an hour earlier in Newfoundland time and don't block the high road from all these trucks that and me were three days driving... And then we finally get on the island, and we can't move. And if you look back, as far as I could see, there was traffic because nobody could pass these two plows because it was dangerous. And they just, I, I don't know, I found it very, very insulting to the people that's not a Newfoundlander. Like, why now? And my next complaint was, of course, driving the Northern Peninsula, why isn't there any telephone service? When you finally get on the island, you think, I'll just, I got, we all got hands free now. Just call our loved ones, say I'm here safe. No boy, no reception, no reception, no reception. And if I go in the ditch, there's still no reception. You know, you, you just have the mercy of somebody will help you if you go off the road because, uh, but the conversation with a loved one while you're traveling just helps pass the time. It's soothing, it's comforting. But not here on the Northern Peninsula. There's no reception. And I don't know how the people put up with it. Because I've been coming back and forth, let's say, for the short of the last 25 years, and there's been no improvement. Um, Patty, before we change, just go on or talk about that. I just want to talk about the people that are going on about our health care system. Well, let's take let's take the two issues that you've already broached uh, one at a time. Back to the plows for a second. Sure, there's absolutely a conversation to be had about when those plows should start that work in anticipation for a ferry uh, load to be offloaded in Port of Asco, Argentia, or wherever else. The only reason they do it with two plows because. You have to force the snow off the shoulder of the road, right? So if you start in the left-hand lane and there's only one plow, then you fill up a full lane of oh, snow. Yeah, I, I, totally, I totally understand that. I do see So there's that a schedule point. issue. Th- that's fair. Um, and everyone's encountered that. It, it's not simply out on the West Coast that they do, that, do it like that. Uh, but, you know, timing is, especially when it's a ferry issue, you know when the ferry's supposed to dock. You can check with the Marine Atlantic Ariane schedule. Okay, then 30 minutes prior, we'll do exactly what you described versus do it exactly when the boat is being offloaded. When it comes to reception, the Great Northern Peninsula is not the only spot in the province. And this is extremely frustrating. Up in Labrador, they have to book out a satellite phone to be able to sail to uh, safely navigate uh, Labrador with any sort of ability to call someone. Like, same thing down the Buren Peninsula. This basically boils back to the telecom companies as opposed to strictly the government to blame because I don't really think the government should be in the business of paying for these massively rich companies, their infrastructure, and because they don't have the client base to add up to the uh, investment, then they don't do it, which leaves a lot of people in a lurch paying a bill for a service they don't necessarily even get. I understand you. And the thing is, like, there's a lot of stuff that we... 
right now, like, why does Europe have such cheap, cheap rates? And why do we just pay to keep these people rich? And uh, the poor, as you say, stay poor and the rich get richer. Yeah. Now, the the government has said they're expanding some opportunity for broadband. I can't remember what the company was. Uh, access on the 5G network. Uh, so that would make it four major telecoms here, which could help. But... Your question about how we pay so much here, we were in Europe last summer, and it's remarkable how little they paid compared to Canada. We are all the time way out in front of the world, G7, G20, developed nations for the cost of telecom services. It's infuriating. Yeah, yeah, it's, an, it's really insulting, to tell you the truth, that we still put up with it. You know, it's a, don't, don't, don't go and rally and don't do this and don't do that. But I just think everybody should just throw their phones away for a year and see what happens to the company. We can go back to writing letters. Yeah, I suppose. The same thing when people say, well, let's all just boycott the uh, gas pumps for a while. And they are sitting on such a war chest, they can wait us out. <laughs> That's the unfortunate <laughs> reality. They've got us right where they want us. And protests and throwing the phones away and all that. Boy, oh boy, they know full well we won't do it well, in, once in numbers. We live without it. Once we live without oh, it. Oh, yeah, I got it. And we had good neighbors, too, then. <laughs> nice neighbors. <laughs> we got the northern neighbors. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Anyway, my other thing, story I wanted to tell you was that I live in Quebec and I've been there for about 12 years. And after leaving Ontario, I left my doctor behind. And I haven't had a doctor in Quebec for 12 years. There is no family doctor for me. I, they gave me a quack once, and I thought, I can't go back to him. He, he's just not the person that I thought was a doctor. And, you know, he kept his bed, he kept the, the office dark, and I phoned the company or the doctors or whatever they call them, the association there about giving you a doctor. You're on the list for so long. Here, we got you one. And I thought, well, that guy can't get a job anyway. Either way... I don't have any family doctors in Quebec because there are none to get. So we're all there the same as we are here. Everybody's crying for help. Everybody's dying in waiting rooms. It's blocked for 24 hours if you go to emergency. You're lucky if you get in after 24 hours. So I have had a few procedures done here in Newfoundland. I had to claim my money because uh, uh, our hospital system here now says... Um, Pay up front, please, because Quebec takes too long to pay us back and not the full amount that uh, they only pay what they would pay in Quebec. So that's all they will pay to Newfoundland. So I just want the people to know that it's not just Newfoundland that's out there crying for help. Oh, no, it's not. People uh, in the province don't like to hear that because they would prefer to say this person or that party is to blame. But we've got a competitive landscape where... My worry on that front is all the additional monies coming from federal health care transfer dollars is the vast majority of it's just going to end up in a bidding war for health care professionals, which, you know, some provinces are better positioned to win some of these bidding wars, which I don't think is the best for anybody. Good for health care professionals. I mean, if you all of a sudden get a 40% pay bump because you go to the highest bidder, but that doesn't mean that, you know, the country will be treated equitably uh before we run out of time uh, this morning madonna who's your telecom provider bell or uh, rogers well actually um i'm from out of town with my phone so <laughs> mine is uh, a virgin mobile 
Okay, so they would but have... It's under bill, but it does come under bill. Yeah, so that's what I was going to say, is Virgin would have a relationship with one of the big three for access to infrastructure, and in this case, transmission towers. So and that's the difference here. Rogers shares some space with TELUS in this province, which has been helpful for Rogers customers, because it's not that long ago, if you left the city of St. John's with a Rogers phone, it was virtually useless everywhere else. But they figured that out in part. And yeah, so Virgin has a relationship with Bell, which has its own transmission uh, infrastructure here. Uh, it's good to have you on the show, Madonna. Appreciate the time. Okay, bye. Thank you for listening. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, the old plow bit. You know, I, I do think it's fair to wonder about timing. There's always going to be arguments about 24-7 depots that have gone by the wayside, and the department says, well, if there's an emergency, then the plows will be dispatched. But what happens if and when people have to go, when they have to go, the plow doesn't have a chance to get out in front of them, and consequently, we might be creating mercy by not having the roads tended to during the hours where the depots are no longer open. Uh, in addition to that, but she's right. So if I'm scheduling the plows in that neck of the woods to try to clear the roads for the ferry that's about to offload, you can indeed work in conjunction with Marine Atlantic, and you do need the two plows operating together, as opposed to one plow fills up the, the right-hand lane and wait for a plow to come behind it to empty it down full as to try to get the entirety of the road in one pass. Certainly better for everybody. It gets done quicker, traffic can flow freer, and we know that's how that works. All right, there is indeed some details available for the announcement regarding registered nurses that we can talk about after this news break. But as you know, that topic, if you're interested, fine. If something else tickles your fancy, bring it forward. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM Morning Show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Well, stemming from a press conference held by Health Minister Tom Osborne and the College of Registered Nurses Executive Director Lynn Power about the newly expanded roles for registered nurses. So they have amended the registered nurses regulations to give the registered nurses now the power, yes, as we mentioned, to prescribe medications. They can order laboratory and diagnostic screening tests and make referrals to specialists. Additional details coming out also include this. There's now going to be a framework developed, no, pardon me, the framework has been developed in collaboration with the College of Registered Nurses, includes the requirement for RNs to complete additional prescribing education through a program that will eventually be approved by the college, which is comforting additional detail because there should indeed be additional education afforded to anyone who's going to be able to prescribe a medication and to be able to under understand the uh, the overlap of some prescriptions and what they mean presenting potentially dangerous situations. Okay. Also, the implementation of a supervised practice experience partnership program, apparently what that means, is aims to provide alternative practice-based path to ensure, or pardon me, to licensure, RN applicants who have not practiced enough hours to meet the requirements. So we have seen that expansion. And, you know, I do know that it does take amendments to be offered to the legislation and regulatory documents for other healthcare professionals to be able to do more. To be able to do exactly what they're actually trained and accredited to do. We're pretty sure there's a territorial issue here where people want to protect their territory. So it's more patients they see because they're the only discipline allowed to do X, Y, or Z means, of course, additional billings. There's got to be a way for the government in the effort to improve the system 
it's, and I don't care who we're talking about in the healthcare world, an LPN or a nurse practitioner, or yes, and I think also additionally important, uh, a pharmacist. If we let everyone do what they're able to do, we'll see more people, it'll be more efficient, some of the backlogs will be dealt with or addressed, some of the congestion in emergency rooms will absolutely uh, be helped by these expansion or the scope of practice to be allowed to do what you're trying to do. But anyway, there's some of the details, the amendments made to the registered nurses regulations. Now, will that actually see a change in the numbers of nurses willing to A, move from the casual list to permanent full-time? I don't know, but the bonus didn't seem to make it very attractive because they have much more control over their schedule as a casual nurse. Will it see more nurses stick with the public system? I don't know why that would, because if I'm a private traveling nurse, I'm still a registered nurse, and so I'd be able to uh, avail of all of these amendments and the different layers of work they can now entertain. So I don't think it deals with either of those issues necessarily. It does open the offering for one healthcare professional to be able to do more, that makes all the sense in the world. So you add that to the concept of these family care clinics or the collaborative care clinic, whatever label you like to attach to it, with everyone in there being able to do more, it just makes all the sense in the world. Now, the province has committed in this most recent budget $21 million to expand uh, an additional 10 collaborative care clinics to different parts of the province. The plan is for, over the course of the next number of years, for there to be 35 of these sites. All sounds good, because conceptually makes all the sense in the world. You may not need to see a, a, a medical doctor to get some help for what is ever ailing you. So you go into this clinic and you see who you need to see. The only trick to that would be whether or not we're actually adding people to the system versus simply moving people around, because... That hasn't really been very beneficial. The one example uh, quite often used is that there was a family doctor practicing in Mount Pearl and had 3,000 patients on their roster. They moved into one of the collaborative care clinics. There wasn't an automatic transferal of all of those patients into that clinic, so those folks just ended up doing what I had to do. Register with Patient Connect NL, which is the place that you should turn if you are looking to get assigned a family doctor in one of these clinics. And it's going to take some time. It took me months and months and months and months, but I finally got through. So it's all about adding to the system. So we'll see how effective that may indeed be. And, you know, Marlene made some excellent points about expanding offerings inside the schools themselves. We know the government has moved forward with expanding the number of seats at the Registered Nurses School at Memorial University. And there's, I think, three or four RN schools for opportunities to train here in the province. But the one that makes even well, the one that makes a lot of sense is expanding the number of seats at Mons Med School. There's only 17 medical schools in the entire country. And out of the 80 seats at Memorial, we now have the opportunity for people from this province to sit in 65 of them. It used to be 60, but when the province of New Brunswick stopped funding their five seats, the province here picked it up. So now there's 65 out of the 80 afforded to people from this province. Memorial has been pretty steadfast in their vocal support to establish a law school here. Now, Munn's general budget is different for, from the budget for the med school. So there's two budgets at Munn. Whatever monies might be attached to the formulation and the creation of a law school, which I haven't been in the back rooms and know exactly how that thought process unfolded, but even the legal community is suspect as to whether or not there's a law school required in the Newfoundland and Labrador. So whatever monies were going to be 
attached to it, given the actual needs, because I don't know if people who need a lawyer can't find a lawyer, maybe can't afford a lawyer, but they can get one. But the doctor issue, because we know you're much more likely to stay into practice in this province if you're from this province. And Marlene goes on to make a point or ask a question about the need to serve for X number of years here where we think we need you in this province, given the fact we're subsidizing your education. I don't know why that's an unmanageable idea. Well, I have some idea, but that would be opining outside my scope of uh, knowledge or authority. But those types of things make sense. I'll add this to the uh, list one more time. And this is a, these are questions we need to pose to the college. Because the colleges of physicians and surgeons across the country, they and the med schools, they hold the strings to who can get a residency. right? So who can get a job as a resident in one hospital or another. There's something in the neighborhood of only 9% of Canadians who were trained abroad have been able to get a residency here in the country. Just imagine if we freed that up a little bit too. I understand the commitment to uh, locally trained doctors and to ensure that the medical school can indeed filter their graduates into the hospital system. But with the amount of need and the numbers of jobs that people are trying to satisfy in different provinces, maybe, just maybe, it's time to loosen up those particular parameters so that someone who was born in Winnipeg, studied in Dublin, is able to come back to Winnipeg and get a residency. Because we have the need, but we don't seem to have the willingness for all the different umbrella organizations and representative groups to work a little closer, to be a little bit more aligned. So whether it be provinces colleges, the medical associations uh, of the world and the like. And of course, I almost forgot that there's been an adjustment made to the fee model that doctors are able to charge back to MCP. The whole fee for service was referred to as antiquated and not helpful. And consequently, some doctors may indeed consider greener pastures elsewhere just based on the way they get paid. So now they've moved off to a more of the so-called blended capitation model which seems to have gotten the thumbs up from Dr. Chris Luscombe, who's the president of the NLMA, yet to be brought to the members for a full ratification. But Dr. Luscombe seems quite bullish on it, so maybe that's just another solution to the ongoing issues. So that's it for healthcare today. And, of course, there's so many different facets of life that we can and should be discussing here on the program, and we can do it right after this break. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to one. Clayton, you're on the air. Good day, Patty. How are you today? Okay, how are you doing? Uh, well, I collapsed Saturday and I went over staircase. We're so exhausted. As of April the 6th, we are evicted from our home. We have nowhere to go. There's no storage space and there's no apartments anywhere. And we were blamed for the financial abuse uh, by Adult Protective Services and the public trustee and Western Health because of the infrastructure. Uh, the whole area of the top part of West Valley Road, which is, involves the Confederation Drive, uh, the old highway, and the new highway in the Bay New Plan report that was done in 2005 for the 2010 infrastructure that almost killed everybody in our home with the front yard. The city came in on our property, took down one tree, chopped the roots up the other five, and installed a manhole for the neighbor up above us to get rid of his water from the front to, back to the front. And the hurricane tipped over the front yard. At the time, the ex-premier 
or the premier at the time got the city to put a commercial background valve in our driveway to prevent us from being flooded out from sewer because we've been flooded with sewer since 1986. We were on a manhole watch then from 2010 to 2012. Within a six-month period with talking to the city employees, we found out that the city took it back within a six-month period. 2012 was the hurricane rain. Mother's old bedroom in the basement went down through the ground, crushing our sewer pipe, we, uh, pipes. We have been so abused physically, medically, mentally, and financially. We ended up in a custody case towards mother. At one point, we, I actually we gave up mother because Debbie was on the stand and she was so abused. And the judge also said this should never have happened to us. The public trustee hired someone in February of 21 to do my roof from Kijiji. Well, he destroyed my roof. You should see the damage on the main floor. Uh, then I put occupation safety on them. Uh, the public trustee lied to occupation health and safety. And in, in return, occupation health and safety actually tried to cover up for them. My last email to them, I told them I want a public inquiry into this uh, for the hire someone with no experience, no training, and no certification, and he damaged my roof. There is a court order holding the public trustee responsible for all said damages to this property. Also, the public trustee stole money from me. I have a bank manager in Deer Lake to prove it, and they would not even uh, respond to the Bank of Montreal's email when they tried to overcharge me on my light bill. Meanwhile, yeah. February of But what, is, what does that all have to do with the house? Well, the house, uh, the house is coming down. Me and Debbie has been sleeping on the kitchen floor for well over two years in the kitchen uh, for a safe escape route from our patio. We've had no plumbing for over two years. And then a few years ago, uh, our neighbor across the street wanted my documentation to get the city to fix his water issue from the golf course. Same water issue I got. The city did this for free. So now, what happens when you get evicted? Where are you going? What do you have planned? Because you must have, have something no to lean on. We have no idea. Uh, last year when I got food poisoning from the food bank on a Thursday, Friday night, I went to the hospital. I had to leave at around 12 o'clock, go back again Saturday morning around 2.30. I got into a dirty room around 7. The doctor in outpatients not only gave me two misdiagnoses, she verbally abused okay, my Okay, so wife. what's the plan for after eviction as opposed to those unfortunate we stories? We have no idea. We are scared to death. My wife, I do an enema on her every week, week and a half. She breaks out in hives from head to toe. In my family doctor's letter, it states that I am physically, medically, mentally, and financially abused, and that I'm paying for medication and doing weekly to buy weekly sleep on my wife because of the abuse. Doctor. Okay, Clayton, and I see all that, and I hear the stories, and I get the uh, the oh, emails yeah. that you right send along. We have an idea what to do. Plus, on okay. December 27th, we were informed that my mother-in-law fell out of a bed in long term. We were informed, uh, that was on December 25th at 4 p.m., we were informed on the 27th. Well, when we got over to the long term, mother wasn't there. Where uh, was she? <laughs> Apparently, she was gone to Western World Regional Hospital. Now, we were, we were there for about 35 minutes, and then all of a sudden, we got lies from the uh, nurses and nursing assistants. Then this non-medical transport shows up with mother. She was covered from bruises from head to toe. From falling out of bed. Apparently. Then, what does that mean? Uh, the, the bruises on her face was no way it was caused by a fall out of the bed. So that you're saying better. you think that another resident uh, hit her or beat no, her? No, no, no. I'm pretty sure it was the staff. Oh, my. You got to see. Well, get a load of this now. Yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't know about that. 
uh, that yeah, any the staff members are purposely beating on the poor well, woman. Listen to the story. Okay? No, that's okay, uh, Clayton, but I do appreciate the time. So you're going to have to try to figure out something uh, for a pound eviction. Is there any emergency services in your... Okay, pound of town. That's it. Um, so hopefully the poor man gets the help he's need because once you are out and you don't have the potential for any emergency services, because not every community is equipped like some of the larger centers. They're simply not whether it be for uh, women who are looking for help. And on that front, we know we've talked about the fact that some of these mercy shelters have been at capacity, not turning people away, trying to offer whatever supports they have, and maybe pointing you to other community organizations or government organizations that can offer you some help. Uh, you know, But what we do not have on that front, and this just pops into my head, is that I'm pretty sure we don't have an emergency shelter for any men who might be fleeing instances of domestic violence. We know that women are the majority of the victims on that front, but there are also also some men who unfortunately encounter some layers, level, or severity of domestic violence and looking for somewhere to go. So, you know, there's the unbelievable part about all this recently has been that so many of these organizations, whether it be like the Gathering Places or Iris Kirby House and others, have been just absolutely at capacity for so long. If you look back, over the course of three, five years, the numbers of folks who are looking for some of these mercy supports has grown exponentially. Consequently, the cost of offering the programs and even the space required to offer the programs has been having a devil of a time keeping up. Because even if you talk about the massive capital fundraising campaigns at the gathering space or gathering place, you still have some pay, uh, space constraints. And so what do you actually do with that? Now we went from a time where the gathering place were turning a couple of people away per night, and that's stopped, which is really good stuff because, you know, my mind very quickly went to places where what can we actually do and where are we as a society where in depths of winter and on some pretty fierce nights where we were unable to put a roof over someone's head, a warm cup of tea in their belly, and somewhere to hopefully have a safe night in out of the elements. And then, you know, people will turn to foyers at ATMs and sleeping in bus shelters. And people will be crossed because they wanted to go in the shelter and there was some person in there lying on the floor, in, out of the wind and the rain and the snow. When, in fact, the conversation probably should begin with, there's someone who has nowhere but a bus shelter to turn. That's a societal question, not about the problem it poses for someone who wanted to go into the shelter or go to the a ATM or what have you. Uh, I'll give the final word here to line number two before we run out of time. Brian, you're on the air. Yeah, Pally, I'm just this school shooting in Tennessee. Right. You know, I'm not a parent. I was a teacher for 31 years. But, you know, one, and you're a parent. You love your kids. Of course. I know they're growing up. But when they were small, okay, how could you send them to school wondering that they'd come home alone? And that's what some of these parents are facing. Thank you to the Republicans. And now, in, I think, in the state of Tennessee, they're going to have an open carry law. That means you don't need uh, uh, some piece of paper to carry a gun. You can carry a gun. You don't need a license. You can carry it outside your body. You know, with our children, with children now, they're dying by the hundreds. All they're interested in is letting people carry their guns. And every time I hear about a school shooting, I think about the parents. I think about you, Patty. If you're one 
of your children or your dear wife, God bless her, was shot by some idiot carrying a gun, that would destroy your life. Well, yes, it would. And I almost can't even talk about it because I don't want to think about it. Sure. The, you know, the same old arguments happen every single time. It's really, and it even gets even more demonizing at this point because now we're blaming all of these recent rash of shooters on someone's gender identity or what have you. It's a, there's a no win in the States. Their gun culture conversation has overtaken any common sense. There's more guns than people. And, you know, they say, well, it's a mental health crisis and there's gender identity confusion or whatever they're trying to blame it on uh, these days. When, in fact, every country on the face of the earth, for a matter of speaking, has mental health concerns and gender identity conversations, and yet they don't have school shooting and mass shooting issues like the United States. None of them do. So they just refuse to acknowledge what's happening in the country. And consequently, people are just in harm's way day in and day out. You know, they're happy to babble on and on and about some of the societal issues as opposed to the ones where people are going to school, going to work, going to the theater, going to a party and never coming home. Why? I got a funny feeling it might have a lot to do with the gun. Uh, Brian, last word to you before I have to go. Jesus says in the Bible, you can worship two things. You can worship God or you can worship money. And for some members of Congress, I'm afraid to say I know what they worship. Well, they're trying to have it both ways, that's for sure. Uh, You've had the last word, Brian. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, we are indeed out of time, and we'll pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, Fonz King, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.